Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. All right, everybody. Welcome. Episode 234. 234. Cool. Cool little pattern. Uh, My guest today, Holly Black. And I've just found out she's from Canada, so I've just been picking on her. But she has a great Canadian accent. I do not. And uh, better than mine. People think I'm, I don't know. I'm like North Country, New York, Canada. Um, You are president owner, CEO, kind of all these different titles of Hurdle Group, Inc., CDC, Immigration, and Labor Quest USA. Yes, that sounds like a mouthful, but yes. That, that is a lot, and you are a massive Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Yeah, I'm so glad that you finished that with Toronto Maple Leafs fan. If you were just going to end on massive, I might have walked out of and the And massive? Room. No, Holly's not. And you not, are massive. She's not massive, but she has a massive work uh, title, Um and, and this will be fun. I know you a little bit. I don't know a lot about you. So I want to like, this will be a good deep dive in a lot of stuff. And I, I feel like I'm seeing you everywhere in a lot of different capacities, which could be good, could be bad. I don't know. But it sounds like, you know, you're definitely in it and you're, you're stirring the pot with a lot of activity um, lately. But for people that don't know you, give us kind of a quick background where you came from. How'd you get to Plattsburgh, New York? And I guess kind of what led you into all this? Perfect. Um, and yeah, I think the first time we met. Actually, can you pull, you can pull that right back up to you? Perfect. You want, there you go. I'm just, yeah. I'm so loud. You're, good. You're fine. I'll, I'll, I'll tone you down here if you get too wild. Okay. <laughs> um, I think the first time you and I met was actually at the chamber leadership training that they did. Oh, what, uh, like North two, Country Connects. Yes. Yes. And about 2018 or 19, it was right before COVID. It so pro- if, yes, that sounds about right. Yeah. I, were you in real estate then? I've been in real estate since 2011. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I was in college, yeah. You were in college, but that's because of your dad, though, right? That you started this? Well, he was in. Oh, so you want, you want, you already want to start asking me questions? I might just turn this around. Holly goes, I'm turning this on you. No, I'll give you a quick background on me. So I grew up, I served ice cream for like seven years, eight years, something like that, from basically 14 to 20-ish. Like out of a truck or? Nope, like ice cream stand, local ice cream stand. It was like slinging, slinging ice cream. Um, liked it. It was good. Then I finally got to the point where I didn't want to have it like a salary pos- or a hourly hourly position. And I was in college. I had I had a business. Um, I was in supply chain management. That was my degree. Uh, but I wanted like just something different. My dad was in real estate since like the '80s. I never wanted to do real estate. Only asked him to do real estate if I could do it part time because I knew I could set my own schedule. And I just didn't want to work at like an ice cream stand during the summer on the nice days. I'm also someone that. I can work a lot and I want to be compensated for my work hours, not because I was like at a job for hours, if that makes right. sense. Yep, absolutely. Um, so that's why I kind of went into this and real estate was a means to an end, meaning I was going to do real estate until I figured out what I wanted to do. And then 13-ish years later, I'm still doing real estate. So, I mean, I like it. So I mean, it's not, but. I have a very similar story, but going one way and then ending up where I am. So <laughs> I guess to start, yes, I am Canadian, born and raised. I'm still a Canadian citizen. And 
Uh, I'm here on a green card, which kind of becomes funny later on down the road. Um, born outside of Toronto, hence why I'm a huge Maple Leafs fan. Lived in Thunder Bay for many years, which I think is the coldest place on earth you can actually live. Uh, nine months out of the year, it's somewhere between minus 20, minus 30. Uh, the Bombardier that they had up there, which is... that is, Celsius or Fahrenheit? I think when it's at that point, negative they actually converge. Negative 40 are the same. They, yeah, so you're getting pretty close, but that was Celsius. Okay. Um... But the reason I was there was for Bombardier, which we can get to. But at the plant there, every single parking space has a plug-in because every car there has to have a block heater and you have to keep your car charging or else it's so cold you wouldn't start it at the end of your shift. Wow. So it was very cold. Lots of snow. Loved it. It was beautiful up there. Wait. you Tip top of Lake Superior. Yeah. So where was Toronto? You grew up around Toronto? No, I was born in Toronto. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yep. And then moved up to Thunder Bay. So my father was the general manager at Bombardier Transportation. Okay. So it's why I've moved so much. It's one of the reasons I'm here as well. So. Wow. Okay. It's very cold, but beautiful. Uh, We left Thunder Bay to go to Vancouver, which everyone knows. And despite all of my travels, I still think Vancouver is the prettiest city in the world. Um, and then when they closed the Bombardier plant there, um, my father was given two options. You can go and run the China plant or you can go to Plattsburgh. And we're like, well, I guess it's Plattsburgh. Okay. (laughs) So we moved here. I moved here, um, in 2005. So just, um, in high school, graduated from Peru high school in 2008. Okay. Um, went to Plattsburgh State, played soccer and track and field there, and then uh, went to London, England to do my master's degree for two years. Wow. Okay. So Thunder Bay, yeah, north of Lake Superior, which anytime I think of Ottawa or Ontario, I'm thinking of like Ottawa, mm. Toronto. Like mm-hmm. this is my, like this is, when you're like, oh, I live in Ottawa, I'm like, oh, you're somewhere down in like Hamilton, Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Not even close. No, no. Thunder Bay is very far out. Ontario is huge. Yeah, yeah. I'm it's just a it's a twenty two hour drive from Plattsburgh to Thunder Bay, and I know this just because wow. we would drive it. Wow. So, mm. do you have family there still? No, but my father actually um, was running both the Thunder Bay plant and the Plattsburgh plant a few years ago. Um, so we would go up to to visit them, and he had a house there, and then a house here. Wow. So. Okay. Yeah, Thunder Bay. Wow, that that is north, um, middle of nowhere. So yeah, it looks. A- that's all right. It's a little bit above Minnesota. Um, so, okay, so you come back, Bombardier, that brings you back to Plattsburgh. Um, you went to Plattsburgh State. I'm jumping around here, but you went for for sociology and criminal justice? So, so yeah, psychology. Um, so Oh, psych and sociology. Yeah. Yep. So when I graduated high school, I was a nerd in school. So I took my senior year, I think I had eight AP classes. Yeah. So that way I could take all my, so I could have graduated a full year early, but because I was doing soccer and track and field, I'm like, well, I still want to play my senior year. So I took on, so I was majoring in psych. Okay. So I took on the sociology criminal justice major because most of the classes were similar to psychology. So I only needed a few more classes. That way I could stay on the roster. And then my junior year of college, I was doing the heptathlon. So it's a lot of hurdles and jumping and running. And um, I had really bad shin splints. And my coach just kept numbing them with stuff. Like, you'll be fine. <laughs> and then it was at ECAC's. It was the second day. I was in a lot of pain. We numbed it. 
I hit the long jump board and it split my shin. Like I just collapsed into, like I didn't even make it into the pit. It was really awful. And so then I spent my entire senior year in the pool. Didn't get to play any of the sports I wanted to. Just rehabbing? Just rehabbing. It was a whole year in a pool um, and focused on my studies instead of my sports. What uh, did you play? Obviously, Karen was coaching at the time for Wiley. She was, For yes, soccer? Yeah. So I ended up stopping my sophomore year and then just continuing with track and field just because I was more set to do nationals and stuff there. So I just okay. wanted to concentrate on that. That's cool. Um, so after college, you went to... England. England. Mm-hmm. So what made you go there? And also tell people what you have a master's in. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Is what that what it's actually called? It is. So it's a master of war studies okay. and it's in international terrorism and securities. So I wanted to be James Bond. <laughs> I'm not actually kidding. I grew up with my dad and we would watch Sean Connery and Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan. Um, so Sean I, Connery was the best Bond. Best. Yeah. And then I actually would say I actually really like Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig was... Daniel Craig raised James Bond to like more of like a badass film. Yeah. Like Sean Connery was just like old school. Wait, Sean Connery, that voice, the yeah. Scottish accent. Yeah. I, I also liked um, uh, Pierce Bros- Brosnan because yes. he looked like a James Bond guy. Yeah. He had the dark hair and stuff. But he As a was, woman, I would say I like Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, he was probably the best looking of all of them. I would say yeah. that. Uh, but Daniel Craig was more of like the action pack. Oh, like, he was great. Yeah. Yeah, but I, GoldenEye I, is Pierce Brosnan. I still think that's my favorite James Bond. I also have the N64 GoldenEye game. Of, of course. Best. Of course. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that. I really like Casino Royale too, which was yes. his uh, Daniel Craig's first one. Skyfall is my favorite Daniel Craig. Was that the second or third one he made? Third. Quantum of Solace was second. And then Skyfall is when he ends up with his original Aston Martin. When I they go back, when they go back up to his house in Scotland in the middle of nowhere, yes. such a good one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I I love James Bond movies though. Um, <laughs> Hence why do, I remember the, James remember Bond. the first James Bond movie? Doctor No. Wow. Okay, you're good. All right. Mm-hmm. You, that's, I really wanted to be James Bond. I was gonna say. I yeah. actually got to tour you, MI6 when I was there, which was the greatest thing. How cool is that? It was really cool. It's a really ugly building from the outside. It looks like almost like a pyramid. Okay. There are these like giant like step things. They actually it's a I think they have a new building now, but when I was there in 2012. That's it? Yep. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. It's not great. Oh, they, they, yeah, that's in the movies. They have mm-hmm. a couple of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really, really kind of just cool getting to be, and you don't get to go very, they say they take you for a tour. You have to like the lobby. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Check the bathroom out. Um, but it really helps when you're studying terrorism. So when I'm writing my dissertation, I can say, oh, I'm writing a dissertation for King's College, which is a very you know, world-renowned yeah. war study school. So it kind of gets you in certain doors that normally most people couldn't go into. How, um, how, I've only been to London once and it was like a quick like day trip kind of thing. It was passing. Who does London in a day? I was, I. So we were going on a school trip. This was back in like my high school years. I think it was my senior year. And our flight got canceled. Like we we're supposed to spend like two, two and a half days in London. And we had like a flight cancellation. So it okay. took out the first like little chunk of our trip. So then we ended up having to do London basically like in a whirlwind, like 36 hours. And then we went to Paris. And I loved London. London greater than Paris. Well, based on the trip, like our timeline, we were supposed yeah. to spend like two to three days there, two so to three days in Paris. Extend London. I would well. I want to go back to London. I, I think London. London was a very cool place when I went, but it was oh. very fast. We actually went the day of the London Marathon in two thousand eight. That's insane. Yeah. I can't believe you do that to yourselves. It was. It, I felt like I ran the marathon when I was done because we just yeah. stayed up for like I think it was up for almost forty hours straight. It was. It was rough. Wow. 
Yeah, I won't. I won't go on that story. But keep going. So no, we we wh- can talk about you and your London trip. We, we we can, but I don't think it's as fun as learning. You actually lived in London. Like I did, I did like the touristy, like saw Buckingham Palace and saw a couple of things. Saw the the bridge and the tower and and then. Do you uh, know the difference between London Bridge and Tower Bridge? Tower Bridge is well. Tower Bridge is the one that goes over. Is the Thames? Thames. Both of them do go over the Thames. 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 Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I, but it's pronounced or looks like Thames. It does, but it's pronounced Thames. Thames. Okay. You learn a lot about the English language and how much we've butchered it. Well, that's in North I, America. Yeah. Again, I said I had a Canadian. I got like a Canadian poor English <laughs> accent. So, um, the Tower Bridge I know is the one that you look, and it's right next to the what was it like a tower or prison at one point. Yes. Okay, uh, that's the bridge I remember. Yes. Tower, yeah. That's Tower Bridge. Mm-hmm. What's the other bridge? London Bridge? So everyone always thinks that London Bridge is Tower Bridge. When they see it, right, the one with the big towers on it, yeah, where Mary Queen of Scots was held and all of that, um, they always think that that's London Bridge, right? London Bridge is falling down. Yeah. London Bridge is really like rinky-dink bridge, which yep. actually does not belong in London anymore. Somebody in some very wealthy person in, I believe, Saudi Arabia bought it and shipped it over there. So they have a make-believe London Bridge. Is this um, the London Bridge? That's London. This is no. Tower Bridge. This is the one that's I saw. That's Tower Bridge. That's London Bridge. This one? Right down below. This one? This one. Oh, sorry. I should look at where you're that's pointing. That's fine. That one's London Bridge. Wow. Okay. So that's very not... It's nothing. It's really... I remember I remember going on the Millennium Bridge. Millennium Bridge. Yes. And and that that's, a, Har- that's only a walking bridge. That was in Harry you? Potter. It it was in the See? sixth one. It was late. It was late. Yeah, it was after it I went was. into it. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. And I don't know if this is like TMI for anybody, but I feel like on your shows, everyone gets a little TMI. Um, I'm not a big drinker, but I will say when I lived there, um, I had been so, yeah. I drank my fair share of drinks and I can proudly say, because the Thames River is so disgusting anyways, <laughs> that I actually got sick over the London Bridge. And just puked out? I did, right over the London Bridge. That's, so I, I mean, when that's I came home, cool. I'm that's like, a good bucket I list. got sick on the London Bridge. That's that's an experience, yeah. Um, you should have been drinking the IPA, which we are told is the wine of beer. <laughs> the so wine of beer. Is an IPA. Um, actually, you know what? This is totally different. I flew in the other day to Reagan, and I never flew into Reagan before that, that I can think of. And like mm-hmm. you fly in, and like you see all the all the monuments are like right there as you come down the runway. It's pretty cool. Total side note, because I just saw this building. It looks like the Capitol oh, okay. building. Like, so like, <laughs> this isn't London. No, Cap- D.C. Like, Ra- Reagan. Yes. yes so, I got and, like you I know. flew in, I'm like, oh, there's like the Capitol and the yeah. Washington. And I'm like, because mm-hmm. everything's low in, in yeah. D.C. So I just, I don't I've know. actually never been. Everyone tells me I should go. I did DC almost. I actually did it a little bit quicker than I did London. So I've only been to DC once. For well, about I feel five like there's hours. less to see in DC than there is in London. I I did. I was like, do do do. Hit all the tourist stops, and we went and ate, and we left. Perfect. As long as there's food, I'm a big. There's food. It was Ethiopian food too. It was really weird. Ethiopian food is my my favorite restaurant in the whole really? world. It's called Queen of Sheba, and it's in northern London. Did you take like the nom or whatever and eat it with your hands? Yes. Yeah. You have to eat Ethiopian food with your hands. Yeah. There's no yeah. utensils. I mean, right. well, it's like a it's like a pita. It's like you... a sour. Yeah. It's like a sourdough pita. Yeah. It's almost like a crepe. This is what. Yeah. I love Ethiopian food and Queen of Sheba. So it's near. Yeah. It's north. It's near Camden Market and Queen. Oh, Did you do Camden Market when you were there? I went to DC. No, oh, I'm London? talking about London. Holly, I was 18 and like with no, I was sleep deprived 18 year old. I mean, I had like no sense of direction. I was gotcha. like, oh, I've seen the London Bridge. Like that's the Tower Bridge, sir. I'm like, okay, thank you. Yeah. So there, that's that's how I know it now. So but. I will say and to anybody listening to this, if I could give anybody a piece of advice when they go to London and it's, 
it's sort of touristy, but it's not like the big tourist thing. If you go to Camden Market, it is a must-see. It is this really eclectic market. One, and it's all like based out of horse stalls. So one stall can be like the super goth, scary area. And then the very next stall is this beautiful white lace, really sweet and innocent. Like this? Yes. So that's the outside of it. And then here the in this building. So these are all the horse stalls. Wow. When you go inside. And there's so much good food. Is it bright like that all the time? Like lit up and... Yeah, well, at nighttime it is. But it's, I mean, it, it, like aesthetically, it looks like a pretty... It's really... Int- but see what I mean? Like, look at these buildings. They have so many different things. You can really... Anything you need, you can find in Camden Market. And then, yes, they have food from all over the world there. And it's all street food. Is it pretty large? I mean, like yeah. large, like locate, like... Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, wow. it's a decent size. So, okay, so you go to... So what was the purpose of, why did you want to go to London? For, was it just that program? Yes. Okay. So I was originally, I knew I wanted to do um, international relations, war studies, terrorism. Um, I had actually studied um, in Plattsburgh State. I took a terrorism course. Okay. And I fell, like, it sounds so bad. I hate saying Nerd. it. <laughs> Nerd alert, but yeah. <laughs> I don't even mean that. I guess I'm going to say <laughs> I fell in love with like terrorism makes me seem like a bad person. <laughs> um, but... I loved it so much. So I actually had applied um, to a school in Brussels, the University of Kent, and I was accepted there. And I was super excited about it. And when I actually went, I had to go up to Toronto um, to meet with the, they were doing some big, I don't know, meeting with all the European schools in Toronto. That way you can meet with counselors and stuff Mm -hmm. to get everything set up. So my parents took me. They let me talk with my counselor at uh, University of Kent and they walked around and they, they ended up talking to somebody from King's College London in their war studies program. And I didn't even like, I know King's College, like they're mm-hmm. the number one war study school in the world, for, like five years in a row at that point. And so I didn't even apply to them because I'm like, I went to Plattsburgh State University. <laughs> I'm not going to get into King's. <laughs> So they gave me an application and I I just did it, not thinking anything of it. And then, yeah, it was about a month later and I got accepted into it. And I was I was in a study corral at Plattsburgh State and I screamed when I got oh, the email. Oh, one of those email. like little boosts? Like, yeah, yeah, that are silent. That no, nobody heard you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Everybody heard me. <laughs> it was really bad. And then I just like ran out and I called my mom bawling my eyes out. Um, and then, yeah, it was a few months later because, yeah, that was almost right before graduation. It was uh, early May. And then I flew over there at the end of August. Wow. Yeah, wow, it was very that's... quick. And then I died my very first 24 hours I was there. Did you just go too hard, look, like traveling around? Or no. just like physically sick? No, I physically spent the night in the hospital. Um, it was real. It was a whirlwind to get there. Um, when I left from Burlington, connecting flight in JFK, and they didn't connect my bags um, there was some crazy thing anyways um and i had to change terminals at jfk which yeah. is huge okay it was the first time i ever flew by myself so i'm like running through airport terminals had to go outside to do it um because somebody told me it was like the fastest way they were holding my plane for me and my sister's boyfriend at the time was like well it was a good thing she was a track star because <laughs> i am sprinting make it to the plane we leave land in london obviously they don't have my bags because of that uh. hole whatever so I get to my hotel and truthfully, everything kind of happens for a reason. It was really lucky because I had a lot of bags and to have to take that from the airport to the hotel and then the hotel, I had to find my flat once I was there because you can't sign anything overseas because they don't, you know, trust mm-hmm. that. 
anyway, so um, get to the hotel. I'm supposed to meet with my landlord the very next day. And that next morning, it was orientation. And so I'd met up with somebody I actually met on the plane who was going to the same school. And we went out for lunch after our first little bit. And just so, you know, I don't eat pesto anymore because of this experience. And so after lunch, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go back to the hotel. I'm not really feeling great. And he's like, okay, I'll see you at, at dinner time. Um, so I get back to my hotel room. And yeah, it's like one o'clock in the afternoon by the time I get there. I tell my mom that I'm not feeling well. And then I spent the next eight hours just dying. It was so bad. And they don't have phones in the hotel rooms there. So I'm talking to my dad. We don't want to worry my mother. And he's like, Holly, you you have to let someone at the front desk know that you are not doing well. And you have to get ginger ale or Gatorade. So as soon as I get into the elevator, because I have nothing left in my system, you know how like the you can yeah. like feel things move? Yeah, yeah. Um, I passed out. I knocked my head on like the ledge of the elevator. So I got a concussion. Oh my <laughs> These God. cute little Italian girls found me. They opened the elevator doors and there I am like passed out on the ground of this elevator. Oh. So they got in the elevator, went up to get their parents. And so this whole time I'm passed out in this elevator. And so finally they bring me back down to the lobby. They, I came to and they were like dragging my feet out of this elevator. The ambulance comes, um, they do all the tests. I obviously have a concussion. I had extreme food poisoning. Oh. Clearly not from the pesto because it happened so immediate after. I just remember that was the last thing I ate. Yeah. So now I don't eat it. Yeah, I spent the night in the hospital. The best part of this story is my dad knows most of this is going on. He's like, oh, Holly, it's great. The ambulance is coming. At least somebody knows you're sick. At the time, I didn't talk to my mom in a few hours. So my dad, sister, and my sister's boyfriend at the time, I guess, were at the grocery store with the phone out held in between them saying, who's going to tell your mom? My dad drew the short straw, calls her, and he goes, Arlene, I have good news. And she goes, oh, thank God. What is it? And he goes, the ambulance is on its way to get her. The last time I spoke to my That's mom. That's how opened it up? <laughs> last time I spoke to my mom, I was like, mommy, I don't feel well. Like, I think I might have food poisoning. That's it. Didn't talk to her ever since that. So the very next thing <laughs> they're not hearing from me is that the ambulance is on its way to get me. <laughs> oh yeah, so um, she called and she didn't know where. It's London, so there are like eight hospitals. She called about five. Finally, she got to the one that I was in, but I had been in and out. Um, so they, you know, didn't let her, I couldn't speak to her. Finally, um, they brought the phone into the room so that way I could talk to her and be like, mommy, I'm okay. Um, yeah, it was a really, it was a really fun 24 hours in London. And then after that, everything went great. Met my landlord, found my beautiful flat. My bags from the Got airport bags. were actually brought to the flat instead of the hotel. So I didn't have to carry all of that. It was great. It all worked out for a reason. Um, so I'm glad you're optimistic. That's good. How, <laughs> uh, how long were you in uh, London for? Almost two years. Yep. I started in 2012 and graduated 2014. Um, I've never done this. So I like, how does tr living, changing to a new country, cause you've obviously done it twice mm -hmm. now. Like how does changing to a new country differ than just living in the same? I mean, obviously it's easy. People do it, but in my head, I'm like, oh, it, it just feels like complicated to do. Is it not bad? I was very smart when I did it and I went to another English speaking country. Okay. If you do, you know, language-wise, you know, some countries, and especially when you're in London, you travel so much when you're there. It's my favorite thing about living there. But yeah, you'd go to these other countries, and then um, I know you get some people that are like, well, why don't they just speak English? English is the number one language in the world. But it's <laughs> it's not very fair to these people. So um, you'd go there, and you do your best to try to 
speak their languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and truthfully, when you go to these countries, if you just attempt, most of them will do their best to speak English back to you. Yeah. Um, which is, I think they just appreciate the fact that you're attempting. But if I were to live in another country that didn't speak English, I would have had a really hard time, I think. But just regarding like getting set up and just like organizing everything, do you find it just very like similar, the way things are done? Like get, like getting your, your lease and then going to school and then traveling or, you know, lodging or food or like... I mean, I know this is stupid because people do it's, this every day. They live right. in other countries. But like in my mind, I'm like, anytime I've gone to other countries, it's kind of like you're like more touristy and you're kind of like on vacation more than living. Right. I think that's because you haven't had to live there. Like I had to live there. I had to um, be a Londoner, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't there. Like I did some of the touristy things, but then I was that person. I was like, we're not going to do that. That's touristy. Yeah, technically I'm a tourist. <laughs> I wasn't. I was there on a student visa. Like I had an end or an expiration date. Um, I, I know that I'm a different person. If my sister did it, love her. Oh my gosh. She would like have ended up in the middle of the road in a ball, just crying her eyes out. Like she wouldn't know when I've, I've taken her there for vacation and just like show her around. She has no idea what's going on. Um, so I just think I'm that type, like whenever I plan a vacation, I like to think that I'm spontaneous, but I'm not. I have Excel sheets, oh, <laughs> things written out, for, like timetable. Like we're, we're there, but if there's like train timetables and we have to make those, like I'm one of those people. Okay. So for me, it was pretty easy. Um, there, it's actually easier to live in London, I think, for rent reasons than it is here. Everything there, here you have to do, um, everything is with a check. And what, they do um, automatic de- or direct deposit oh, yeah. right to your landlords. They actually don't do anything. If you are a licensed landlord you actually have to do it through the direct deposit and through the bank so that oh, way they I can collect that. yeah it just makes things really easy yep. um yeah i mean and my flat i was really lucky it like i paid or the utilities and stuff was all included in my actual rent so i didn't have to worry about getting anything like that set up so okay so it wasn't too bad then no just look for things that are all inclusive what <laughs> um so can, how was actually like studying war studies it was so interesting. Like, did it live up to what you wanted to do? No. So okay. I don't want to say it didn't live up to, but it... So I went there thinking I was going to be James Bond. That's why I wanted to do terrorism. And I had... And it was just one of those things when you first start, they give you the list of all the classes. And I swear, like, I just want to be in school the rest of my life learning all of this. It was so interesting. It was so hard for me to choose which classes I was going to study. Mm-hmm. Um, but did it and so my main course obviously was terrorism that's what i had to write my dissertation on um but the class that was the best class for me was actually um the conduct of contemporary warfare okay so it was a lot of um african wars yep and i ended up taking a course on child soldiers again when i say interesting i know that makes me seem like a bad person but it was just more like heart pulling for me and i really wanted to learn more about it and at the same time I was in that class, uh, the Imperial War Museum there um, had a special exhibit on child soldiers in Africa. So I got to go do a lot of stuff between the two. It was really interesting to the point now, and I know that you have children. Mm-hmm. I do not. And as I am 32 and approaching the you know, biological clock thing, <laughs> um, I had kind of resigned myself to the fact, especially after my studies, that I probably was going to adopt. Mm-hmm. And if I did, I would do it from probably one of the more war-torn areas in Africa, just after everything I learned about it, 
just seeing how I could help out. And I get it's just one child, maybe two, mm-hmm. um, but it's still one or two children that don't end up yeah, absolutely. in that situation. So kind of pivoted um, from terrorism to more of like the nonprofit realm. Um, and I got to that from the warfare, but also from the terrorism in that my dissertation was actually the psychology behind radicalization or Western radicalization. And I know that there's this common misconception that people think that refugees, if we allow refugees in, we're allowing terrorists in. Very, very bad misconception. And I think it puts a really, you know, a hamper on the whole refugee program. Um, And with everything I learned, it's, again, people see what they see on the news, so they don't really have a lot to go off of. Not that I'm an expert on it, but I studied it. I wrote an 80-page paper on it. It was a really long time. Um, Lots of books, articles, meeting with different people, um, lots of interviews. Um, So from that, which actually kind of goes into why I started my company, um, I really wanted to look more on the nonprofit and helping refugees. Um, I'd helped a friend of mine, who was the wife of somebody I actually went to school with, um, start Allied Aid, which is a refugee program in Greece. And so in this area, I had done some fundraising activities. It was, it was all focused on women refugees, getting them, you know, sanitary care that they needed, undergarments, stuff that you don't think that people need when they're fleeing, right? You're just like, let's just get out. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it's cleanliness, safe things for women. So from that, got into manufacturing, I guess, <laughs> which <laughs> really, we can get to that, but... Um, when the opportunity came for me to start Hurdle Group, the reason I did it was because from whatever revenue I can make from that, the goal would be to open up a nonprofit entity from it to help refugees and help them find jobs once they were here. Wow. Okay. So, um, it's like kind of a, like really quick dive into, we, we, we went on the other side of the tower bridge. We're coming back. So this, um, okay. So you just got a lot here, which is great. Um, Okay, so so what, let's just start. Let's start with your companies, and then we'll kind of dissect those and pull sure. them back. So that, I think that'd be easier. So go through all three companies. What each of them are? What do you do in each of them? Mm-hmm. And kind of like what? Because all of these have pretty much come pretty quickly within the last what year or so? Yeah, all in October. All October two thousand twenty. So these are all fairly new. So kind of give new. us a background on all of them. Sure. So um, I guess probably where to start, just so that way everyone can understand. When I moved back from England after I graduated, um, like I mentioned, my father was the general manager at Bombardier. They had some, I'd done some internships for them in HR um, before I left. And there were some positions available just for, you know, side help. So I started back at Bombardier. And then one of the women I had worked for started her own company, um, ProTech Business Solutions, which which was a recruiting and staffing. She's like, hey, I know you want to go be James Bond. But um, just come help me set up this business. And then like you, you end up starting something and then you kind of just stay with it because it's just, it just made the most sense for me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that, um, I kind of just got sick of the revolving door of recruiting. And I was on site a lot at Bombardier. I had over 400 people that worked for me there when they were doing their big New York ramp up. So I was there doing a lot of HR stuff anyways. Um, so I decided to go for my SHRM license, and which is the HR license in the U.S. And um, 
passed. And then literally that day when I walked out of my test, knowing that I had passed, which was a very strange story, um, I have a recruiter called me and said, hey, just wondering, I have an HR generalist position available at Norse Titanium. Like, I don't know how he knew <laughs> that I was doing that. But honestly, I walked out and he called. And so I ended up taking that job, left that job to go be the HR manager at Vaporstone, the mm-hmm. Wabtech company. And then was there for about two years. And then in April of last year, Tom Robinson, who owned CDC Immigration and LaborQuest USA, had reached out. He had gotten my name from a mutual friend. Um, and he was looking to sell his business. And I was like, mm, I'm a corporate girl. I'm not really interested in owning my own business. And then I gave him the name of my now business partner, silent business partner. I say silent. He's not very silent, but says that he is, um, who owned ProTech Business Solutions. Okay. He called me back and was just like, I want to do this, but I only want to do this if you run it. I want you to be the owner. I'll be your silent business partner. I'll financially back you, but I want I want to do this with you. And I'm like, no, it's not really something I, I want to do. And so he kind of just let it sit with me. My mom says that I'm like a, I'm like a garden. You kind of have to plant a seed and then it just kind of grows as much as I say. You got to no. water and pour some, some sun I don't, water. You don't even need to. No, no somebody I, just says something to me and I'm just like, no. You're a spider plant. Right? Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> and so there was just other things going on at Wobtech at the time. And it was just thing after thing that finally I was like, you know what? I kind of do want to work for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just tired of putting these ideas out there and nobody taking them. And then six months down the road, someone's like, hey, we should do this. And I'm like, do you remember six months ago when I said we should do this? And now we've lost all this time and money and people. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so we decided to do it. We started, we knew we were going to do the immigration, but we also, we wanted something to be the parent company. And with my HR background, and since I, I knew nothing despite me being an immigrant, I know nothing about immigration. All Bombardier, Norsk, Wobtech, we had companies we hired to do all of that. I never had to know anything about it. Mm-hmm. So we wanted something that I was comfortable with. Um, so Hurdle Group stands for Human Resources Development and Leadership. And it was really supposed to be this HR consulting company. So offering sometimes staffing and recruiting um but a lot of you know small and medium businesses don't have the time to or the resources to put in an hr function which is really needed especially in today's world right when this whole great resignation nobody likes staying in a certain company a lot of that is because they don't feel that that they are valued which is a lot comes from hr so the goal was to have this hr consulting company that both cdc and lay request would kind of fit under their umbrella because they kind of run hand in hand if you think of it from a very large bird's eye view, I guess. Um, so yeah, so Hurdle Group is HR consulting, CDC immigration are work visas, um, L1As, TN visas, which are like the trade NAFTA, green cards, and this was the funny story I was going to tell you, um, <laughs> CDC immigration back in 2000 and. 11, it gave myself and my family all of our green cards to give me the ability to buy the company. There you go. <laughs> 10 years later, 12 years later. So um, now I own the company that gave me my green card. Um, so that's CDC Immigration. So, you know, a lot of my clients are a lot of manufacturers in this area and really around the country, um, mostly Canada, 
to U.S. visas. Um, some H-1Bs really we're waiting on the government to really like fix that program right now um, just to extend it just as I'm sure you know and with Elizabeth being here um, recently too mm -hmm. knowing staffing and recruiting um, there there aren't people so um, one of the reasons we got into it was because there aren't people in North America so having an immigration business seemed a little lucrative right now because we're gonna have to be shipping people in and and labor quest is also that's HR kind of LaborQuest is H-2A and H-2B program. So these are seasonal labor jobs. Okay. Okay. So like when you're in Peru and you go to the apple orchards, mm -hmm. all the people there from Jamaica, they're all here on H-2A visas. Okay. Yeah. So, and then CDC Immigration, mm -hmm. that's more of the just Canadian company, for the most part, Canadian company. Canada companies. to U.S., yeah. Um, so our, and Hurdle Group is parent company over those two. Yes. So, and Hurdle Group currently is you and a silent partner. Yes. Okay. And then are there between CDC immigration and labor quest? Is that um, how? So they're both DBAs, if that makes it easier. Okay. Yep, yeah. They're, so they're DBAs. So gotcha. my partner, Jean Doucette, um, and I'm the majority shareholder. So that way we're currently applying for my WBE. Okay. Um, which is like the longest process and needs to go much faster than what it is. Um, so yeah, he's my silent business partner. He's my lovely bankroller. Love him for that. Um, but I have all the day-to-day -day of Hurdle, CDC, and LaborQuest. Okay. So mm -hmm. okay, now I got a full circle coming yeah. back. So, mm -hmm. um, so what made you like the HR aspect? Like, what pulled you into HR originally, and then what pulled you into? I mean, the immigration was it purely just Tom picking up the phone saying, "I want you to take this over," and yeah. you're just like, oh, "Let me try it." Pretty much. Well, again, I didn't want to try it. Um, Jean, he's a very good salesman. Like nudged you into it. No, he kind of like pushed me like head first into the <laughs> like pool. Off the ledge. <laughs> really. Um, he's very good at painting a pretty picture of what life could be like if I ran my own business. Um, and again, being able to make those calls after I spent so many years trying to make those calls and having a voice at the table, but that voice never heard. Um, it was really um, appealing to me. So what was your hesitation about working for yourself originally? I would be the first one in my family that did it. Mm -hmm. um, we've always, I mean, my father worked for Bombardier for almost 30 years. And I've always, you know, saw that, you know, succession ladder. You know, he started off as a engineer and worked his way all the way up to general manager of three sites at one point, California, Thunder Bay, and Plattsburgh. Um, and just watching his growth um, was really, really impressive to me. Um, and kind of wanting to be that woman that did that in the corporate ladder as well. Um, and the security. The security mm -hmm. of knowing that I belong to a large corporation that I was always going to get a paycheck, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what what was the uh, kind of straw that broke the camel's back? Because like you said, you didn't want to do it, then you got kind of pushed off of doing mm -hmm. it. But obviously, you had to go along with it. So, was there anything that like really jumped out? Was it just purely I want more control? Um, this is going to sound really bad, but I was actually on vacation with my parents. We were sitting on a beach, and I just I people just kept calling me, and it was one of those things and. For as long as I can remember since I started working, when I go on vacation, I always have my phone, always bring my computer in case of an emergency. Like, I'm always reachable. Mm -hmm. 
But there were so many times that, I mean, I would get on a plane and I would have a layover. And when I would pick up my phone during that layover, I'd have so many messages, the, you know, world ended. And I'm like, really, you guys can handle this for the three hours I was on a plane? Yeah. And then, yeah, I was on a beach with my parents and it was the one day I'm like, I don't want to be reached today. Okay. Nothing is that pressing that can't wait until tomorrow when I can pick up a phone. And my phone rang. There was just a crisis, apparently, which wasn't really a crisis. It was two people, two supervisors not getting along. And it was just really, it was really unfortunate that they couldn't deal with it on their own. And so I ended up going back to the hotel room dealing with all of this and yeah I kind of started thinking at least if I worked for myself and I was doing this I'd reap the benefits Mm -hmm. for it I was just tired of the fact that I would put everything in place for people to be able to run with it and then I know it sounds bad but I never received any credit for it Mm -hmm. and not that I need like a you know pat on the back but you know salary wise wasn't getting it there either Mm -hmm. um There was just a lot that kind of went into it. And I just thought if I worked for myself, I could control my hours. And yes, when I go on vacation now, which I don't think I've really gone on one, I went on one. Um, But the whole time um, I worked, which was fine because I knew that I was going to reap the benefits of it. And then I have employees. And I think that's different for me, too, is knowing that my success depends on their pay or their paychecks depend on my success. Mm -hmm. So when it's 11 o'clock at night and I want to shut my computer down, but know something has to get done, I'm like, I have Lori sitting in my office and, you know, her livelihood is going to depend on whether or not we make it as a business. So that gives me something kind of fight for. Yeah. Um, So making the transition. So I agree with a lot of that stuff. And I think that's when people like recently I actually have this in my and uh, journal notebook in my office, but I've been going through a bunch of stuff. And a lot of it too is, um, and I have this conversation a lot with Jen. It's like, how, what do I want my, whether it's life or work life to look like? And then really trying to figure out like in a perfect world, this is how I want to design my business or my life or whatever. And then it's like basically writing down all the stuff I'd like to do, writing all the stuff I don't like to do. And then trying to make a plan to accomplish both, like eliminate the bad and, and raise up or double down on the good. And a lot of it like is the always on call kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten better at it. I've gotten better at mitigating it. And, and I've put more of a focus on it the last couple of years. But as life got crazier and like, you know, work responsibilities and kids and, and like your time just gets so pinched on both ends that I was like, okay, I, I'm going to self-destruct, like physically, mentally, emotionally self-destruct ruin like relationships with my wife or my kids or just i mean just be a miserable person to be around and but you it's like i ended up like taking a step back and like but i've been able to work smarter the last couple years Mm -hmm. and putting systems in place to kind of say like what you're talking about of you know i have full control for the most part over what i do and but also putting in the boundaries of you know, when I'm gone, luckily I have, you know, some staff that can help me and leverage, but it's like, you really gotta, it's, it's tough because you're, are you like a, are you someone that, uh, what, what's the I word? I know what like, you're going to ask, a control freak? Not yeah. a, no, not a control freak. Uh, well that, that, yes, that would be one thing like, but I'm thinking more of like a yes, 
like a yes person, like like yes. oh, I want to help you, I want to help you, I want to help you. Where oh, I'm a people pleaser. Or a people pleaser. That's it. I'm a people pleaser. My yeah. therapist says so. My mother says so. My yeah. friends say so. Yeah. yeah. And I think that there's there's a fine line because I I think I try to do that too, but I also know there's a level of if I don't have time to myself or if I don't have time to just have a little bit of downtime, like it's better for my mental state well being before I tackle stuff because like you you take on too much stuff. And I was guilty of that. And I think a lot of high achievers are. And I could see you going into a business. Now, obviously, you're starting off and you're kind of building this up. Like, you're going to work a disproportionate amount of right. time and grind it out. But, you know, it's the idea of, like, once you get a little bit of leverage or a little bit of capital where you can start buying back some time freedom or boundaries, then it's like – because then that's the, that's the fun thing about business is because there's – we talk about the corporate ladder of, like, seeing the level of succession. There's no level of succession in business. It's like you're here and, and that – level is infinite you can do whatever you want but you get like you get it from your your out or your input like so you will like like you said you benefit from right. all those crazy hours because you can see the needle move and you can see how it works and then but at a certain point too like you can keep doing that but then you got to like and this is different stages like pause and I've, I've had a few different changes within my workspace over 13 years and i'd say it happens maybe every three to four years like a major internal change like personally or in the company or something uh, but it's always good because it's like you're growing out of that to get to like a new stage um but there's so many times where it's like like does your business live in your mind 24 yeah. 7 are you able to shut it down okay no and um Luckily or unluckily, I guess, depending on how you look at it, I don't really have, um, I, I don't have like a family life outside. I have myself and my dog. Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky and fortunate that I have family close by that I get to spend time with. Um, but my life is my, my business right now. Um, and yeah, as soon as I leave here, um, my uh, sister has been visiting from Seattle and her and her fiance are heading back tomorrow morning. So I know I'm going to go home. I'm going to make her her goodbye dinner and then I'm going to get back on my computer and then just, yeah, work. Um, but right now I don't really have any sort of like passions outside of that. And I've just kind of really focused myself on making this a success. Again, I think, you know, when I really try to figure out what it was that kind of pushed me to do this, um, the idea of success to me, um, sure is a really pretty house and a place that I want to be. Um, and like a really large closet full of clothes from Aritzia. Um, but I really, I really want to be able to create that nonprofit. Mm -hmm. I've thought about it for years now. Um, so I know that the hours that I put in now will help so that way I can build that, that entity of my business. So yeah, so you, I mean, you're working towards something. If yeah. It's, if it's like a passion project, then yeah. you, you'll stay with it. Um, so, but yeah, I find that like, if you can't ever step away from work, then it's like, and it constantly overrides your system, like your mental system, and you're just like, it's almost like you have, like I've been there where it's like you have a hard time functioning if you're not doing work because it's like, I just feel like I have to be doing something. Oh my goodness, and then, it's insane. Yeah, and then when you get like a pause, like I've tried to be more... Like I read this book. I've been reading a lot of books, but there's one book that came. You up. do read a lot of books. I love yeah. seeing what you read because I'm always like, oh, I'm gonna add that to my. I'm yeah. gonna add that to my I, list. I get, yeah. If you need recommendations, I got some great ones. I can, but it just like learning more and more, and 
One of the books I read last year was called Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. I love that book. I love Ryan Holiday. Like I love his genre of stuff. But um, one of it was like kind of stillness of like your move. Everything's like fast, like just chill. Like like most of it's like in life, like if you're if it's things are just happening and you're just constantly going, you're constantly moving, like you miss out on like life. And this is not and you're doing stuff. So it's not like a bad thing, but sometimes like did I really appreciate that event or did I really appreciate that person or did I really appreciate, did I appreciate that podcast with Holly or was I like too distracted with my phone and everything else? Like, I mean, the good thing is like both of us are just chilling and talking and there's, but it, it, you feel more chill right now than you would if you're just like rattling off work because things mm-hmm. are just constantly coming in. So the idea of like being still was like, I find that like in reading where I can just like sit, you know, in a chair or on my bed, lay on my bed or do whatever and just like read have a pen and just read and take notes and it's just it's quiet there's no distractions and i find it's like a little bit of a gate a, a getaway for me i'm still learning i still like the stimulation of learning but i also like just the 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 pause aspect like i pause my email all the time like i just so i don't have like that's something i don't know how quickly you have to respond to stuff but that's something about like putting boundaries around things of like just like chilling it and like having a little bit more um, like free time. Like I don't feel rushed, like leaving this to go do so. I have like two more appointments tonight, but they're like, it's chill. I don't feel like I'm like scrambling to respond to a bunch of stuff. And like, I have stuff coming in, but it's, i kind of do it when it's like, you know, I, I, I try to really control that stuff in my life because then I, I do get little more pockets of windows where I just have nothing going on, which for me, I like it. Cause I, th- I think a lot and I, I want to say overthinking, but I'm constantly thinking and I'm like strategizing. Well, I'm are you are, like overthinking though? Like, if somebody tells me something, I think of every possible way what they could mean instead of that exact point of what they said. Or just take it at face value. I don't take anything at face value. It's a flaw. Like that's not even a good thing. That is like my biggest. Flaw. So you think there's like an underlying like tone or underlying like motive to? Yes, every... absolutely everything. Is it's that, really bad. Is that your internal like MI six like? You know, I've never heard of it that way, but instead of like berating myself for it, I'm just gonna say, no, it's because I'm a spy, really. I should be thinking of things yeah, that way. You're just yeah. you're just so far ahead of everybody. That's that, what it is. Um No, but I think that like um like overthinking, meaning I don't second guess a lot of my decisions, but I I actually very rarely second guess. I'm I'm a big believer if I make a decision that's meant to happen, I just go with it. So you're really good at multiple choice tests then? Yeah, I have no second guess. Oh, uh. I just go down. It's like, like my dream. But I go down. I'm like, okay, four. And I'm like, one doesn't work. Two doesn't work. One or two. I'll, I'll sit there and I'll be like, eh, that one. And I'm one if I take multiple choice tests, I don't go back. So I, I, I finish the question, go to the next one, and then I'm done. Oh, you're good. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm actually good at getting the grades, but I just, but I don't, I, I heard this thing the other day. It said, if you take your, even if you spent a little bit more money, but you took down your decision making time, they said the amount of decisions is not the actual negative for people. It's how much deliberation you take to make a decision. If I was like, hey, Holly, do you want coffee or tea like coffee? That wasn't a hard decision. I didn't, that did not take a lot of energy, but it's a decision. If I was like, you know, do you, you want to go with this? I don't know. Let's say this strategy or this strategy. And then you have to start thinking about it. Next thing you know, you're like mentally, you know, layers deep mentally into a problem, which is very mentally taxing and it takes a lot of energy out of you. You might make one decision. It took you two, three hours to make, but you're completely exhausted versus a bunch of like very trivial mm-hmm. decisions. So I try to get better at not overthinking stuff because I want to make decisions pretty good. And most everything, you can always rechange a decision. You can pivot. you know. And I think that owning your business, you'll 
definitely you probably have yeah. already like you can pivot very quickly because you're like for the most part i mean like yeah you don't have to ask anybody like eh, i want to change this like change it like that's right there's a freedom there but um but i think over like thinking in my head is i'm constantly strategizing thinking of plans writing stuff down and this is stuff that maybe i want to do or maybe i want to um like develop or change or implement but it's those thoughts are always in my head so when i'm reading or watching a video or or just consuming stuff or someone i'll hear something I'll, i guarantee you you'll say something there but i like like i think i could run with that and i could apply it to this point in my life or something and then but like i get it and then i and it might not be done tomorrow but it could be tabled for six mm-hmm. months from now and i implement it but i'm constantly just adding these like wish lists of things i want to do but it keeps my mind like creative and just like a sponge to pull in ideas that's like what i mean by thinking i'm not like an overthinker i, I like to process and plan stuff but then make a decision and then just like I live with it. Like, I'm good. Oh, yeah. No, I'll make a decision. And I'm like, was that the right decision? Should I go back and change that decision? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's bad. Fine. No, it's bad. It's something I'm I'm working on, yeah. especially being, you know, in business. Um, but the whole stillness thing, I just, I know I need it. I had medita- I tried meditation yeah. actually back when I was doing my master's degree. Um, and it's so funny when you're in school, you think nothing is going to be harder than this dissertation I'm going to write or this test I'm going to take. I can't wait to get working where I don't have to do this anymore. And now I like scream for the days where I have a paper that's due and I have to that's finish that. That's all you that. have to do is write a paper. Right. Um, well, it's just, it's funny how life changes. What kind of meditation did you do? Um, so I'd started with guided and then one of my favorite ones I had done, I'd actually gone to a yoga studio and it was just this one way that we ended one of our classes. I love yoga. Um, I don't know if I'm any good at it, but I do love to do it. Um, and when she talked to us, when we were in um, our last pose, which, you know, dead man pose sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, That's just like lying on your back, yeah, like just chilling. Yeah. Shavasana, I think. Anyways, she talked to us about breathing. And when we were going to breathe in, we were going to breathe in the color blue because it was fresh Mm -hmm. and then when we would breathe out it was gonna be the color green and then she would guide us through like breathing in blue into our like arms all the way down to our fingers and then we breathe out picture the green air coming out from your fingers and like that thought was really refreshing right like I was taking out all the bad and the heavy and the negative out of me and you could really choose any colors that that work for you I just like the blue and the green um and so then I took that and when I meditated because my mind always runs a million miles a minute that whole what did you call it stillness is is the key is the key yeah i that's like a dream for me um because i can't do that if i would try because regular meditation even guided meditation where somebody else was talking i stopped listening to the person talking and i would just start thinking about all these other things so I would just, if I focused on those colors and like having a color go all the way to just one individual finger and then have it come out and then the next finger, it was just a focal point for me to concentrate on. So Mm -hmm. I could just do that. I stopped thinking about other things. When I say that, I mean, like, I think the most I could ever meditate was maybe 10 minutes. Um, But I kind of got away from it. And now I've tried, like, I'll try for like a week just to get myself back into it. I've tried the Calm app. Mm Um, and I just, it's just difficult for me right now. I just have so much going on. Um, so. I started doing, I, I got, I've gotten away from it the last few months. I got to get back, but I started last January of, uh, 2022 and I started doing a transcendental meditation. 
And I went for a whole like course on that and it was um, very eye-opening. And there's a lot of science behind it and a lot of, you know, a lot of people do do it. Um, that just, that's the book. That, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of people do do it. And, and really what it is, it's, so it's a little, it's different. It's 20 minutes twice a day. So it ends up being 40 minutes. So the hard part is just physically taking the time to do it is the hardest yeah. part about it. But what happens is you sit for about 20 minutes and you repeat a mantra in your head. So it's, it's like, it's not even like everybody's got their own like mantra kind of thing. It's kind of like a personal thing to them, but it's not, it's a sound. Like it's not a word. I'm not, I'm not saying like it's stillness, like stillness. It's like om, om yeah. would be one of them. It's yeah. kind of like just a sound that someone has. So like I have one and I just repeat it. Like you just sit and it's chill. It's not like you got to be like doing like the hands and the cross legs and stuff. Like you can just sit in a chair. I do it. I've done it in the car. I've done it on my bed. I've done it on the floor. Like just wherever you kind of find a quiet space and you just sit there and repeat this mantra for 20 minutes. And what happens is eventually you go through and you kind of just go into nothing land. You don't hear the mantra. You don't hear, you don't hear anything. You, you're, you're saying the mantra. Cause all of a sudden you'll like snap out of it and you'll be like, I haven't stopped saying the mantra, but your mind is wherever. And, and people are like, well, don't think. And the whole thing behind this is your mind never stops thinking. Right. You're going to get thoughts. Your thoughts are going to come in all the time. And don't, if I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, work, work. I'm like, oh, I got a podcast today. I'm like, then I'm like, oh, no, no, go back to my mantra. Like, and that's what happens. Like you go all over, but you got to keep just bringing it back. But it's not like, it's very chill. Like don't beat yourself up if you've gone the whole time and your mind's all over the place. And what they said is if you're having all these thoughts that pop up and you're able to come back, all of those thoughts are stressors in your life. And it doesn't mean like my, that exact thought is a stressor, but you'd be surprised at what comes to your mind. Things that like you might remember some something that you did as a child that now comes to your mind like, oh my God, I haven't thought of that in 20 years. But you're, but it's just like all these things and the stressors and then you do it twice a day. And so like I was doing it first thing when I woke up and I tried to do it at some point in during the day when I had time to do it. But I found it was extremely powerful. And if you do it every single day, I think the most I did it was close to two months in a row without missing a day. Wow. Without missing a session. And this, I forgot when this was. This is probably about a year ago. And I just felt more chill. I felt more at ease. My thoughts were better. My thinking was better. My I, I started doing it because of anxiety. I'd get anxiety. Like I yeah. wasn't getting the stuff. And I was like... And I still fight anxiety, but it's really helped. Like, and it got to the point where like things that normally would bother me was like, okay, like they're still there, but I don't feel them. Like, I don't feel that anxiety like pounding in the middle of my chest. It's like, I feel like, okay, I'm like, I'm good. But that was, I don't know. That's just something I went, I had like, you know, you're thinking of stuff, but I'm like, I got to fix something, you know, like I can't keep having like panic attacks and anxiety attacks over stupid stuff. That's really not important. It's just, I feel like. I got to get done. I got to get done. This is not done. Like I, what am I getting time to get this done? And like those, that was just this constant like vortex that I was living in for a few months. And then I finally was trying to combat it where it was like, like, and it worked and I feel like I'm better because of it, but that, I, mean, I don't know, it's maybe something to look into. Oh, absolutely. my anxiety is crazy. Mine just gets to the point. I didn't cry for years. Mm-hmm. I always was like this really tough person and like weak people cry. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I cry all the time anymore. And it's just from overwhelming. Like I had an issue with, um, one of my H2B clients. It was this big recruiting thing that had happened our recruiters down in guatemala and el salvador were like we're overwhelmed we can't take your last 10 clients 
And I'm like, okay, but I'm not set up in those countries. I don't speak Spanish. I don't know what you expect me to do here. And it was, it was a lot. And I had a mass, this was, yeah, three weeks ago now. I had a massive bid proposal due for Alstom, North America, for Mexico, US, and Canada. It was, it was huge, all this other stuff going on. I really didn't need that. And I just figured everything out, got to a certain point, went over to my mother's, told her what had happened and got in my car, drove home and just bawled the whole 15 minutes home, like sobbing, bawling. Yeah. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning and I felt great. I'm like, you know what? I can tackle this. I know what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And it was fine. Um, but I'm just so tired of like crying <laughs> at this point from being stressed. Sometimes and, it's a, a release of pressure, you know, like yeah. a release of like the stressors and just feels good to like let it out and i think it's like i again i don't really i don't i cry more from like sappy things that remind me of my kid like a sappy movie or something or like a heartwarming story on tv i don't i don't really cry from stressors but i get super stressed out and then i just i guess my way of like crying is like just shutting down and going and just like getting by myself yeah like shutting off like work like reading a book going like doing something that's just like, I, I go, which is probably not good for my golf game, but I like playing golf. So, like, I, some days, oh, I'm like, never I just. never golf angry. Huh? Never golf angry or stressed. No, but it allows me just to go out. And I'm saying it might not oh, help gotcha. my scores, but it, it just allows mm. me, like, to go do something where I can focus on something different. Yeah. So, it's just, like, getting away from a situation. I walk in the woods with my dog. Yeah. Yeah, what they not call hiking. it? Nature bathing, like, just going out. Is that out what it's and, called? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I'll just walk and, yeah, just kind of wander and then freak out when he chases a squirrel and doesn't come back for 10 minutes. <laughs> There's your other stressors. <laughs> um, so uh, so uh, let me, let's talk about so woman in the workplace. Again, you said you've done some stuff with this and manufacturing. And obviously some of these roles are, um, I would agree, have been more male dominated, you know, and probably mostly are still male dominated. But um, do you like being in the manufacturing industry and kind of what is it like with, you know, woman in the workplace or kind of maybe getting over a stigma of in certain industries. Like I I always find this is a hard conversation for me to have because I work mostly with women. Like and it's um like I grew up my mom, I had two sisters, no brothers, so I had a you know family like that. Obviously my wife and I work primarily with women day to day. And even when I was back in the day working, like I had always worked with women. So like my head, I've always just I've never looked down upon anyone and i'm also in an industry where like you get rewarded based on how good you are right. and for the longest time all the the top agents in our industry for as long as i was starting for about 10 years were all women so like i always was like looking up to these females that were just badass in our, our business um so like i always have a skewed perspective on that but i'm also in a, you know real estate which might be more woman friendly i don't know but kind of what's your Kind of dive into that because I know you, you've yeah. talked a lot about this through here. Um, yeah, truthfully, the only podcasts I've been on other than this one were all about my experience with women in manufacturing. Um, right before COVID in 2019, um, I had actually started a women in manufacturing training program. Mm-hmm. So like ETS and Courier all had these great programs, Ramp and Ready for Real, where they got into high schools and were preparing these people and younger children to, you know, be excited for manufacturing because Plattsburgh and Clinton County is so heavily dominated with manufacturing companies. Mostly thank you to our neighbors in the north that <laughs> decided to, to build here. Um, and I grew up 
in manufacturing. And like I said, my father was with Bombardier for 30 years. So I grew up in a train manufacturing plant and I don't know how we got away with it, but we were those kids like running around in the trains when without steel toed shoes or safety glasses on at the end of the day. Miraculously, none of us <laughs> ever got hurt. But Get all I, toes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun for me. And when I had come back from my studies, you know, I went back to manufacturing just because it was easy for me and I understand it. I remember sitting around the you know dining room table listening to my dad and my mom. Uh, my mom had worked at Bombardier as well and other manufacturing plants before we moved here and so it was kind of just in the family and it was always just really exciting for me and then when I started working there you know every all of the managers were always men all of our engineers always men and women were always in you know the procurement roles like you know supply chain management or in clerical roles and um even for me I was in HR which is predominantly a more of a female role Mm -hmm. and you know being out on the floor every day walking around seeing all my employees and (laughs) seeing all the men there like it was very hard for me to hire women in these roles and it was because of the bias and the women that we did hire were extraordinarily strong women and they they had to be because as much as you know the me too movement and everything has come out trying to mitigate that in the workplace it's still there to this day it is still there um even when i was in my last job as an hr manager people would say things to me and i was like okay first off you know i'm the hr manager right like that is not okay for you to say to me and then yeah having to discipline them and then that comes the the other part of it right women and especially in manufacturing plants you are either the object for people to talk about or you're the, I'm not going to swear on here, but the witch with the capital B sort of thing, if you had to discipline. And as a woman in HR, where you are either the therapist or the principal, it was really, it was really difficult. And, you know, we tried to promote women into more managerial roles. And as soon as a woman would say something, she was being extremely negative or extremely firm. Um, why couldn't you just say it like he said it? And, you know, this isn't something to say, you know, he said, she said, whatever. Um, But it's definitely something that was a struggle and is a struggle for women. And, you know, that's just at the managerial level. When you get onto the floor and you, I'm sure you've heard of shop talk. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing. Um, And not that I walk around with earmuffs on, so I, I do hear it. And this is what I mean about my extraordinarily strong women. A lot of the times they were the objects of those conversations and they would just have to turn the other cheek and not say anything, not get involved. And, you know, sometimes you have women who can't take it and they leave and they go to something else. And I just hated that mentality that this whole stigma of women in manufacturing um, and the ones that make it are like your super butch girls. Manufacturing is so much fun. Like, I'm not saying I'm any good at it. I can put together IKEA stuff, but like building a train, <laughs> not really my forte. Um, but it is fun and it is exciting. And it was just very upsetting that women didn't even want to try it. Right. Like even when, you know, you and I were in high school, right. Women did shop or sorry, women did home ec and men did shop. Mm-hmm. Though I don't know. Did you have that in the U S in yeah. Canada? We had no, home ec and shop. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it, um, I would say the genders gravitated towards those two. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's not right. It was available for both, Correct. but it was yeah. that it was, you know, where people wanted to go because of, 
you know, what you saw on, you know, the media or what you read. And a lot of times your parents, right? Your your parents were in these gender roles. Um, so even from, you know, a young age, that's all you know. And I remember when I was in shop class in, in Canada, you have to, like, for grades 9 and 10, you have to do both of them. And then after that, you can kind of choose. And I remember we got to build these really cool robots in shop class and we got to use a soldering pen and like read blueprints. And I had so much fun doing that. And then it just kind of stops because we're not really encouraged to do that anymore. It's why I'm a huge proponent for all these like STEM courses that people are offering now, Mm -hmm. especially STEM for girls. Um, Because I think it makes people realize that girls and boys can do anything, right? We're like huge into advocating men into male nurse roles, right? Mm -hmm. And still even, you know, male nurses have that, you know, stigma that you're a male nurse. I mean, what does it meet the, meet the parents? Gaylord Fokker. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's just upsetting that, you know, for men and women that they're, it's still thought of of these like gender roles. So I just kind of wanted to help change that. And then last year, last fall was really huge for me. And I was very, I think I actually wrote this down when, you know, we were talking about, you know, questions that we can talk about. Um, like I said, I'd been on podcasts talking about women in manufacturing. I'd been on some panels. And then last fall, I was asked to go to New York State Manufacturing Day in Elmira to be on a panel there. And the whole ride down, I had gone with one of my female managers. Um, and it's like a five and a half hour car ride. And I was really nervous, just like I was nervous coming here to talk. I don't <laughs> like, I like talking, just not about me or anything. Um, so the whole car ride down, they told me the questions they were going to ask, and I had everything prepared. And I get up on the stage, and there's probably anywhere between 120, 150 people in this room. And I'm sitting up there. There are two female panelists, and there were five male panelists, which is normal for a manufacturing thing like this. And these are people not just in New York State. There were Pennsylvania, Vermont, um, And then I know that there was one company from New Jersey just because we ended up keeping in contact after. Anyway, so I'm sitting up there and I'm looking out at this room and I actually just started to count. There were 21 women in this room of almost 150 people. And just like that, I completely forgot what I was going to talk about when it came to my turn to talk. And I just started, I brought that fact up. They asked me my question about women in manufacturing, and I said to them, I was like, you know, I had a whole, like, speech prepared for this to talk about this, but then I got up here, and I looked out, and I saw that there are 21 women in this room, and for someone who doesn't like speaking in front of people to, like, completely wing it and not use my speech, um, I actually spoke better then than I ever had with anything that was prepared, just because, yeah, it was from the heart, and it was something I was really passionate about. And similar to what I talked about here was that whole, you know, women and that really it's not a woman's always going to back another woman, right? Like we are cheerleaders for each other. We're always pushing each other and are pulling each other up, I guess. Um, you know, sometimes women can be catty and, you know, jealous or whatnot. But most of the time we're all cheering for each other because we know what it's like. That's not the that's not the issue, right? Because if you have another woman in a meeting room full of 10 10 men and two women that woman of course is going to help that other woman it's those 10 men those are the people that we have to kind of get on our side to to help lift women up right we don't need those 10 men interrupting 
uh, because they think their ideas are better or because their voices are louder. Um, if a woman says something, you know, it can't be, well, she's just being really negative or she's just being really witchy. Um, and it was really taking those 120 plus men that were still left in the room after I took out those 21 and appealing to them and telling them what they can be doing in order to help women in meeting rooms and women in the workplace. Mind you, most of those men were all manager level and up. They're not going to be out on the, on the shop floor. But, you know, it needs to start somewhere. And it was really incredible, the feedback I had afterwards, because we had a, you know, a booth there or a table there um, just for, like, networking opportunities. And I had, like, a line of people, like, waiting to talk to me afterwards, men and women. I made a lot of connections. And it was just one of those, like, really empowering moments that I had. Um, I don't know if any of them took it and took it back to the workplace. I can only hope that when, you know, they were in a meeting and they were going to interrupt somebody. They stopped and let them finish. Or if they heard someone saying, oh, that woman's such a, such a witch. And they're like, well, not really. They have a point. You know, I can hope that that's what happened. But it's just one by one kind of taking have it you, um Have you seen it get better since you've been in? So that happened in September. And or I should say, like, when you got in, say, at a, you came back over. Okay, in started, 2014. Yeah, your work, like, let's say your professional work career to where you are now. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Because you've been in manufacturing mm-hmm. for a while. Have you seen it get better? Not at all. So it's been the same. Um, or, I mean, it's been, like, pretty much a, just a, a stagnant. level. It's stagnant. And truthfully, as I worked my way up, I felt it more, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, kind of upsetting. And then for me, like, I also had to worry about my age mm-hmm. as well. It wasn't just me as a woman. It was, you know... I, like I was the manager there and I managed, um, two different sites. Um, so almost the level of a director and, you know, at any given time, um, whether it was in meetings or if we had all gone out with, you know, our CEO or president who was in town visiting, I was always the youngest at the table by like at least 20 years. So I had the woman factor and the age factor. And again, it's one of the reasons I kind of went out on my own. Cause I just was tired of having a seat at the table without having a voice at the table. Um, but I could see it from my other female managers. And don't get me wrong, I'm usually that person that, you know, you catch more flies with sugar or with honey than vinegar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually told the other day by one of my best friends that I might be too nice <laughs> to be a business owner. And I'm kind of trying to be like, well, maybe nice people don't finish last and trying to propose that. But, you know, some of my really strong um, co-workers that were managers were women and a lot of the times you know people would come into my office and complain about them that they were too harsh and I'm like they're not really being harsh they're being honest Mm -hmm. and if anybody else said I wonder if you would be in my office um so no I unfortunately haven't seen it change um mind you when I made that speech none of the people that I worked with were actually there to hear it um and I wish that they could have and maybe they would have checked themselves the next time um but at least from the plants that I've worked at. I will say I know um, Alstom, which used to be Bombardier. I used to have a lot of good friends there. And they're really trying to push, you know, women, um, especially in their managerial and engineering roles um, there. Nova Bus is doing really well uh, with that as well. Um, it's really just, it's just stigmas and men trying to help break those down. Is it... Um... Do you think it's a generational thing? Do you think it's uh, more of like a... Because when I say... 
But I guess what, what what do you think would be the way out of something like that? Like, or the way to kind of turn turn the stigma or maybe get everything more on an equal playing field? Like, is there, you know, what, what do you think has to happen? Because I typically, you know, kind of use the adage, like teaching an old dog new tricks kind of mm-hmm. thing is that you get, I mean, this is totally different, but I've talked with people and worked with people and brought ideas up. And I've had, typically I find people that have been doing this for a longer period of time, male or female, doesn't matter, but just the age factor, there's more like, ah, be careful of that. You shouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, because it, you've always done it a certain way. Yes. And it's kind of like, it's not that it's a bad way you were doing it, but there's better, more efficient ways to do stuff. Like, do you find that it's reprogram? Because I, I tell, well, I don't really talk a lot of politics, but... Sometimes, smart, sometimes, smart I, sometimes I do at home, but then I, I usually tell my wife, I'm like, most social issues over, like I found over time, like things typically change for the better as a society. Then I said, it's not, it's not like who you vote in is going to miraculously wave a magic wand. No. and It's going to happen. I said, these things take time. And I said, like, I have this conversation with my wife all the time because she's a very... Um, she's in her master's for sport performance psychology. As she should be. Um, she's awesome. She's one of my favorite people. Yeah, she's great. And But if you bring up um, unequal pay in women's sports to her, she will go off the rails. And I, then I and again, I'm like, I, I have nothing negative about it, but I said, you know, she's like, well, how would you change it? I'm like, well, it takes time. It's like little things over time that, because it's, if you're trying to move a mass amount of people or especially move something that's been ingrained for so long, you know, like even the way that people speak or talk or do stuff that are just older and you're like, oh my God, but there are 60, 70, 80 doing that. And I'm like, you know, the things, things I find are attracted to potentially generational. Do you find like in this, you know, say these men that are in manufacture or in managerial roles that are, let's say they're forties, fifties and sixties, they've been working there since the twenties or thirties. So they have 10, 20, 30 years, right. 20, 30, 40 years in these fields do you think that this is just something they've been ingrained with it so long that's just like trying to break a habit or do you find that there's a real bad bias where they're like i know that's the right thing to do but i'm still not doing it for whether it's trying to hold power meaning like i want to keep my position or maybe i feel threatened by a woman coming in which you know i feel that there's people like that where it's like i don't want to move the status quo because the status quo benefits me where they're, they're not willing to kind of like take a step back to do what's right and instead they're like in it more of the selfish reasons mm-hmm. i mean is there have you like determined what the main issues would be or like what would be kind of like where, where the trunk of the problem would be that you could attack and say like, okay this is why things aren't done the way we probably should be done sure so first i know you corrected yourself when you said manufacturing and then change it to managerial it's the same on the manufacturing floor what i'm going to say next so it's manufacturing oh, it's not, yeah. or managerial it's you were you were perfect in what you said there um one of my least favorite sayings is this is the way it's always been done. Same. <laughs> it's just so, yes. it's just so. That's the worst excuse It really ever, is. And ever. then when you try to do new things, they're like, well, this is the way it's always been done. Right. And this is why we're not getting anywhere Which different. Which is why it should be mm-hmm. So I agree. A lot of it is, you know, generational. And I will actually say a lot of my, um, you know, sexual harassment complaints that I've dealt with over the years generally were men of a certain age. Um, to women, um, just because they, you know, uh, even 10 years ago, it was okay to comment on a woman's behind when she was in the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. You're just, yep. and I understand. And when I talk to them, they're like, well, hey, I wasn't saying anything negative. I was just complimenting them. Um, 
and I, you know, I appreciate that, that you were trying to give somebody a compliment, but don't do it in the workplace. Um, and you know, that's still objectifying somebody, right? And then, you know, you even, you know, women can be really bad at it too. And I had talks with some of the women at work where they, um, liked it they liked that the men were talking about them like that and what had happened was because they didn't and you know some of them were very loud and vocal and very strong they wouldn't stop them but then I had some girls who weren't loud and vocal and the men would talk about them and they were not strong enough to tell them and they didn't like it just uncomfortable yeah and so that's when I you know tried to go to my women then my strong vocal women and say hey when you accept it that means that someone who doesn't want to accept it that they have to accept it so I need you to stand up and say hey man, that's not cool. But again, a lot of that was yet generational. Um, Going to defend Miss Gina, the equal pay thing is actually something that can be taken care of right now. And it's, um, you know, as an HR manager, I'm not going to disclose, you know, salaries, but I know everybody's salary. And when I would see that, you know, this manager or this director in the same role as another director who was a woman made a less salary and had a lower bonus. I was like, um, why? Yeah. So like there are things that can be done immediately and, you know, I'm very pro Gina and so I will support her in that as well. Um, and a lot of it I think is just, you know, the disproportionate amount of women in the workplace, which could be, be changed a lot by and i'm not talking about politics but government and their assistance right like we still struggle to this day with daycare and one of the things i tried Mm -hmm. to work on when i was at wabtech was coming up with daycare programs like i would bring in women for interviews and i was super excited about it and it didn't even matter like when i worked there i brought us up to you know be comparable to nova bus and bombardier at the time um pay wise so they paid pretty well and it Mm -hmm. still was cheaper or the women would still save more money being on welfare or taking you know unemployment um because they didn't have to pay for daycare and the government was still you know subsidizing their health insurance at that point and they would have to contribute to our program we had a great program but they still had to pay in weekly plus the daycare the gas to get to work um and it's still you know a lot of our programs are geared towards women staying home right maternity leave paid paid family leave love it now in new york state that it's you know men can take their time off as well which i think is great that they're doing that um but a lot of the you know sexism that you see is just because of the disproportionate amount of women in the workplace so we need to start changing that and the only way you can do that is by assisting them to get back to work yeah, the daycare thing, I mean, just because we're more in that space right now with kids, it's like you see a lot of that. And I mean, I just see it with Gina, too. Like she does um, she works part time, but she's for as long as we've had kids has stayed home and watched the kids. And now we're going on five years or over five years of that. So and she's studying to do her master's and she's studying to her master's yeah. and she's doing stuff behind the scenes. And I think we have like her and I have a good like partnership with trying to get everything done and supporting each other and you know figuring it out but but yeah it was like easier for me at the time to continue working versus like you know whether you're breastfeeding and then she's doing stuff with the kids and obviously you're trying to get your body back and everything kind of back in balance and you know i've learned so much watching you know basically three bouts of early motherhood with her and then you know as you're you're growing that um and luckily we were in a position but you know to 
to do it, but it's it wasn't easy. I mean, no. it's stressful, and even now to the point of like how much it costs just to send them to preschool and daycare. Oh I mean, we have a mortgage payment just to send our kids to school. Like it's, and you know, you look at that and it's like, oh, like that's, you know, you're making sacrifices in other spots, but it's like you're in this like constant bubble and like again nobody forced us to have kids so it's just it comes with the territory of like you know you have all these expenses that are going to come on uh meaning just in general like they these kids can't provide for themselves so you know you have these these um dependents but then when you look at it like i can see how that's an issue not only the fact of just like physically watching the kids but it's like you do have a certain point where your body is just different like when you have a yeah. kid like your your hormones are changing your body's changing you go through whether it's postpartum and you have like all these issues that could come about of, of it and then you know i find a lot of like gina's itching to get back like more in like workforce thing because mm-hmm. and she's you know and i think she's a you know in my eyes a very strong person and very capable of you know I defending herself yeah she's she great. she's she's a very uh she, she, I, I always told her so one of the things I love most about her is she is very independent like and she's she's great but I, I do find that even watching someone like her that I feel like has more than enough tools to you know be independent and figure it out a lot of you know females don't have that or there's some females that you know struggle or kind of get let's say like maybe not as like luckily we we both have family local we have like i know some mm-hmm. people that families don't live around here so it's like trying to raise two three kids with no help from grandma and grandpa because they don't live in the area that gets very difficult and then right. you're trying to work and then you know so i can see like i've thought more about this and you know just through reading and, and obviously talking a lot because she'll read me her case studies and then we just like go off and then she'll start like i'm like well i'm not arguing with you like I, we're not gonna get an argument on this and we just don't fight with you know, yeah, yeah 100 so, i have every Believe she's going to win that fight. Yeah. Well, then I'm also like, it's just not the fight. Like, I'm just like yeah. chill and watch something yeah. or just relax. But um, but I think like learning more about it and kind of looking at, you know, how society works and runs and it's very, dyna- it's a very dynamic and there's so many layers of everything that it's like, it's everything will change over time, I, I hope and believe. But it's mm-hmm. like, it's this, you really, it's got to be like a mass movement of people all tra- all paddling in the same direction. And it's right. like, and you got to change the, the ultimate. And I, th- I, I would, and you said, I'm not in the field. So when you say it's kind of stagnant, um, I'm hoping that maybe those stagnant is like the results, but like the under, I'm going to say undercurrent, but like the, you know, the, the, the activity that's starting to bubble is I think it's becoming more of a conversation where hopefully people are learning and changing where the results might have more of a lag time they might be kind of a you know may not happen as quickly as the people are acting but hopefully in a year three or four years from now that we're seeing where you're like actually the last three years have been really good or five years or whatever the next five years or something but maybe it was all the work over the last 10 years i've slowly started to build that momentum up um i mean you hope because when you say like to me if you have two people doing the same job that are producing the same results they should be paid comparable. I mean, I mean, not comparable, but it should be paid the same. Equal. Like, yeah, yeah, equal. For sure. Um, so when you're like, and now I've, I've also, like I go back to my business, like I shouldn't be paid as much as someone that outperformed me. Like I would never want to be because then I'd be like me, I'd be like a chip on my shoulder, be like, okay, I got to get better. Right. But, but it's, but luckily I get paid via my output, not necessarily like someone just giving me a set salary and saying, do it, which I've, right. that's something I, I, I've never understood of, if you have two roles that are the same role, no matter who's doing the role, provided that they're both able to have the same output, mm-hmm. depending on you know whatever the role is, 
like everything should be the same like because right. it's because it to me it's just like that's the position but so i mean that that's that's something i'm not i don't have to deal with day to day but i also realize like that's something that to me seems like a very easy thing to switch and i don't understand why that's not just like a common thing it's right. like because I'm, I'm always like on like a meritocracy like if you are better and work hard then you should be compensated for what you do and it's not because of this that or whatever it's like if you're the best person for the job you should get the role position the raise the salary the the promotion whatever but for sure i don't know i mean is that like how do you find that most does that work in in like companies or corporate settings do you find that i mean some people probably believe that but it, you know it's obviously not most things probably not one person making the decision I think what needs one thing that needs to change and I think it helps um, not just with like women in the workplace, but, you know, this whole, you know, great resignation and people leaving is everybody wants that stagnant salary, right? Mm -hmm. You have your hourly rate. That's the how much you're going to make every hour. If you work overtime, great. You get paid a little bit extra salary workers, you know, that whole quietly quitting mm -hmm. thing that people were doing, which I just think is ridiculous. It's just you worked until, you know, three o'clock, which was your end time. And then you left. Um I'm not of that mentality, but I was, I'm of this generation, but not really of this generation. Obviously, you know, I work on weekends and until 11 o'clock at night, but going with that, I think that there needs to be a shift in how people are paid, um, to, to kind of focus on that, like a performance payout, right? For some reason, and especially in manufacturing companies, the only people who earn bonuses are managers and up right? When our assemblers are the ones that are building the product. And I understand, you know, if they're working overtime, they're getting that extra bit of money, but they had to work extra hours in order to get that. Um, I feel that people work harder and better if they get to contribute or if they know that that extra work that they're doing is going to contribute to their paycheck at the end of the day. Or like a profit share kind of thing. Profit sharing. Yep. Exactly. That's what I was getting to. So, you know, I understand you can't pay every single assembler, you know, $15 an hour plus a bonus structure, like, you know, tips or commission or anything. You're not going to be able to, that would just be way too much as an HR that has to deal with that. I'm saying no. But where they can, um, yeah, get shares of the company and then their performance um, dictates how well the company does. And so that, you know, affects their shares and how much their shares go up. I think it's just a brilliant idea. And a lot of companies, not as many as I would like, and it's more in your like SMEs, um, that you see more of that profit sharing. Um, I think it just kind of changes that mentality um, and would help people do what you said and work for a higher pay instead of just resting on their laurels because this is, I get paid $50,000 a year to do this job. This is all I'm going to do. And you know. um, what about, because there's obviously like you have the salaried or you have hourly, hourly positions. Mm -hmm. Again, one of the reasons I got into my business and out of what I was in before was I, I didn't want set hours, but I wanted to be paid based on, I think it's called um, like paid almost like per project, not per hour kind of thing. Okay. Like I want to like I want to get paid for my output of, of successfully completing a task sure. or whatever. What is that called in manufacturing or do, is there, that's not a thing? Not a thing. Unless you're, unless you're a consultant. Like if you're a contractor okay. or a consultant and I hire you to come in and do this one project um yeah then you're you're paid not as an entity of that company you're a 1099 or i've outsourced you from like an engineering contracting because okay. i'm thinking of like nova bus and if it's like hey for every bus we produce out like which is a project mm -hmm. we get paid x and then like and, and 
Because then you would say that would spur on, and again, I don't know how Novabus works. They have salespeople or people that are trying to bid on contracts and mm-hmm. stuff. But like, you want to bring in an opportunity to make another hundred buses, and then people are like, okay, hundred buses. Like now, we're good. I one of the things that I try to focus on or have been trying to focus on instead of working around the clock like crazy, it's like I want to. I've tried to really limit like my priorities to like big things and then say, okay. I might work on this for two to three hours straight and put everything into it. And then the rest of the day, like I really don't care. I don't have to work 10 hours today. I mm-hmm. can work th- three really hard hours and dabble for another two to three hours and then take the rest of the day off. But knowing that it made a bigger impact on the work that I was doing. So I try to focus on like project time for me versus like, like I look at like what the two things I hate doing the most, I hate doing email and I hate doing like our database management, mm. like clients and reaching out oh, and corresponding. Gosh, yep. Like I, I spent all of today and after today, like just meeting with people and at appointments and stuff. And that, I love that. It's more mentally stimulating. I, I get out and about, I see people, I get more energy from that. Um, I also, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just wiped out, but in a good way, meaning, but there's, there's certain things that, you know, if you can, do stuff based on a project role and again manufacturing i'm assuming that's getting from you know widget from start to finish and out the door kind of thing if if there's a way that people can be compensated based on that which but again it's a slippery slope because then it's like well so and so's dragging their feet and then but so are you not going to pay or or you're not going to pay us because we didn't get a bus out the door because of something that we couldn't control and therefore we don't make any money so it's you know it's a, it's a tough like there's the good on the upside, but like mm-hmm. on the downside, you almost have to have like a base like pay with, you know, like you said, whether it's bonuses, but um, I, I don't know. I'm, I've never been in a manufacturing business, but it's just. Uh, so they so they don't right now. It's not something that you see, especially at Novobus would probably stand a better chance of doing it because um, here in Plattsburgh, they're a large company, but mm-hmm. Prevost was a very large company, right? Mm-hmm. They're an international company. Uh, Novabus separated from them, and so they're their own entity, and I believe only have three, maybe four sites now. Um, so they would be a perfect candidate for profit sharing, um, that everyone makes their hourly wage or their salary. Um, and then, you know, your shares that the company gives to you is then based on your work performance, right? Instead mm-hmm. of giving them a bonus, their bonuses and shares. It was actually... Um, how my father received a lot of like he would receive his bonus when he was at Bombardier, but they also gave him they also gave him shares of the company, and you know at that time <laughs> Bombardier shares were like eighty five cents, so it wasn't gr- like great. Are, are but they, they would all give publicly him, traded companies. They are well, Novabus Prevost is. I don't think Novabus is oh, now. Prevost could, was part of Volvo. But you could still give shares of a company even absolutely. if you're public? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I was going to yeah. say, I'm not like in that field, so. No, it just like, it would come off like their dividends, right? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So so there are ways to do it. And I think that profit sharing, um, when I was doing my HR management um, course through Cornell, one of the case studies we had done was a um, welding company. They were a supplying company. And they were such a great case studies why they had chosen them because their retention rate was incredible like unheard of in today's world well it was 2017 when i took that course so maybe not in today's um but they 
did this profit sharing and it was incredible people were so happy they came to work and they wanted to get everything done because they knew that if they could book this next client because of all the work that they did you know that just meant that they're it's again that's that bonus incentive people Mm -hmm. work harder when it affects their paychecks if you are guaranteed the same paycheck week to week and people on the floor right assemblers don't know what's going on up above that we are at risk of losing a bid or we're at risk of losing this client because we are not performing well out on the floor, right? They come in, they're given their blueprints to do for the day. They don't understand all the politics going on behind it. So they would understand it if it had more of a profit sharing and that way they could be reading up on things and asking the right questions to say, hey, how close are we getting to this client? And then that kind of also goes to transparency, right? There's that wall between blue collar workers and white collar workers that needs to be taken down. In my opinion, I hate that people are categorized as those like all of us at the end of the day worked to build this train car or this bus or this door operating system, right? It took all of us to do it. We shouldn't be divided into a blue collar and a white collar. It creates like this caste system almost. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the fact that white collar workers are the ones and your higher up white collar workers who already make higher salaries than everyone else, they're entitled to bonuses when nobody else is. So it's really just kind of men or women is equal pay across the board it is uh is the reason for that is because it's always been that way yeah no absolutely okay. i yeah, was gonna yeah. say i'm like i'm sure it's the way it, things have always been done yeah all right well that's what I, was, I was like you kind of look at it and you know i think that i i i think for a good thing i think that you know i'm gonna say we're part of the, a younger generation still like of, of people especially of the work like i think Stuff that I know I think of and I'm sure you think of and our peers think of is different than even 20 years, 10, 15, 20 years above us, where it's just kind of like 20 years, let's say one generation removed. I feel like some of the things that we're questioning are going to make the status quo better. And then I'm hoping that someone like my kid's age is going to question us and make it even better down the road and that you're constantly trying to just get this thing. better. Yeah, just better. And, And I think that's something that, I've really tried to focus on, you know, like I am a very, (laughs) I work really hard to try to be smarter, but I am like, I have limitations. Like I have things I'm just not good at and I try to get better at them. But I also realize like, I know my brain thinking ability is, is tapped out at a certain point or only has a certain amount of experiences. Like you're, you're mentioning stuff. I'm like, I honestly have no clue what that is. I mean, I'm glad you're like talking about it, but I'm saying I'm learning about some of these things, but it's like, if you're looking at, if your ultimate goal is to try to, whatever it is, improve, be better, whatever that growth is, I don't think it matters how you got to there or who got, gave you the idea or the plan. I think the idea is like, if you have everybody saying like, we're trying to move from point A to point B and point B is better than point A based on whatever metrics we're trying to uh, to establish, how we get there should be a collective like, you know, uh, thinking pot of all these ideas that are going to eventually go up there. And I find if you, I mean, do you find, again, when you talk about like white collar, blue collar, I've, people like there's a diff, like people that are on the floor that are making stuff see things way different than people at the higher level. So what you can find though, is that some of the decisions at the higher level, people need to know the minute day-to-day details, whether it's for efficiency, whether it's for cost saving, whether it's for functionality, 
uh, cost elimination, anything like that, that you really aren't going to see unless you're on the floor and realizing like I've, de- I've dove in back into our systems over the last nine months and I found so many inefficiencies. And again, the reason being is like, oh, we've always done it that way, which is fine. And we just fall in a trap of like, if we're not auditing our own ways of doing stuff, then we just, we're not growing. So like going in and just changing a bunch of stuff has made a lot of things way better and way easier. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it wasn't until I like peeled back certain areas or pe- people's jobs or, or what I'm working on and realizing like, this isn't, this could be done a lot better. Like this is just, yeah. and, but I think it, I mean, luckily our top line to bottom line is really stagnant. Like there's not a whole lot of mm-hmm. layers here. So it's easy to, to really have those conversations. But I find, especially at a big company that's more complex or di- dynamic that, I think there's got to be a more of a blend or bringing people off the floor that see this stuff every single day and just like, what, what what's a problem that you face? I don't know. Is it like as simple as someone coming up to someone manage a um, managed position, someone's on the floor or on the assembly line or something and saying, you know what? I think the way we do this is very inefficient. I do it all the time, but this is a little bit quicker. And that could, if you're talking about many units, like that little change can boost efficiency by quite a bit by just making a couple small changes or directional or whatever the you know the logistical part yeah. of of the layout but um do you find is that well accepted in companies or once you've been at or ones that you experience or is it very much a divide of like you do your job like here's the manual do the job don't talk to us we're gonna try to figure stuff out um so a couple things with that um first I think my father is the smartest man on the planet, and I take a lot of my success, especially manufacturing, based on things that he taught me. And one of the best things he ever taught me was that he would get engineer interns all the time from Clarkson, from RIT, like really great schools, and he never hired them in an intern role, like an engineering intern role for their very first position with Bombardier. He put them on the floor as an assembler, Um, and a lot of them would turn it down. They're like, I'm not going to school to be an assembler. But the ones that did go and do that, um, or at least, you know, if they were put into like a methods technician position, which he put out on the floor, mm-hmm. that way they could understand that. That way they were there because a lot of the times as even an engineer, right, who are brilliant, they're very smart people, very strange people. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, they they can only see things their, their way because they're the ones that developed it. And they don't understand that, you know, the screw that they think fits perfectly in there doesn't actually like go at all Mm -hmm. and by putting them out onto the floor and understanding how to build something from the weeds up you get that overall grasp of everything and you don't sit in your chair at your computer designing these things you are actually out on the floor understanding how they work Mm -hmm. and so it's it's kind of both ways you know the our assemblers should feel comfortable to come into the office to talk to our engineers to talk to their managers and the very next breath our managers and our engineers need to be out on the floor. Um, one of the biggest issues that we had even at, you know, Wabtech was the fact that our supervisors stayed in their office, not our supervisors, our managers all stayed out in the offices. So, you know, I had put out these things, they're called Gemba walks, mm-hmm. um, which kind of focused around quality and safety. But really it was a chance for all of our managers and I made sure that there was a representative from procurement, quality, um, engineering, everybody had to had to be out on that floor to understand what was going on on a day-to-day basis. Because if we didn't get parts of the line, that's that's on procurement. And, you know, our buyers would sit up in their offices 
and at their desks, not realizing that the entire line on the floor had stopped because they were too busy sitting up at their offices dealing on the phone. Um, they didn't think that, you know, Gemba had anything to do with them, but it did. They had to understand that what they do or what they don't do affects everybody else and things can't move forward until you do that. So when I say to take down that wall between blue collar and white collar, it's really to put everybody out onto the floor or to have people feel comfortable enough that they can go to people. So again, one thing that my father had done was every single lunch period, when he wasn't in a meeting, he would go down to the cafeteria and eat with the assemblers. So that way people felt comfortable with him. Every single morning, his first thing, he would drop his bag off and then go and walk the floor, say good morning to people. And it all it did was let people know that they could go to him and talk to him to say, hey, this isn't working. And he understood, I mean, he was a mechanic growing up, like 16 years old, he worked in a garage. Mm -hmm. So he could really understand how things fit together. And like, it's one of the reasons I think that I've been as successful as I am because, you know, I started out in the weeds. You can't just stop at the t- or start at the top level just because you have a college degree and you think you know everything. You really have to start from the bottom to understand. What about, um, like, have you dealt with, like, younger, let's say people just out of college coming into jobs? Like, have you found, do, like, your, your dad put them on the assembly line. Are you finding when you're maybe you're interviewing these people, or, um, are they... Are they willing to start at the bottom? Some of them aren't. Okay. Because I, I find that I've dealt with some people, at least in our field, where they'll, they'll come in and like, I'm going to be in real estate. So okay, great. And then all of a sudden, like a year or two in, they're like, yeah, like this is, this sucks, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you're doing fine. It just, this takes time. Like right. you're not going to do it in a year and all of a sudden be in a position that you're like, oh my God, I'm great. And like I tell people, I'm like, there's 170 agents locally. I said, how, Holy why, cow. I'm like, why would there be something like, why would you use, why would someone want to use you over 170 other people? Most of those people have been doing it longer and are way smarter than you at that real estate. So it's like, so you have to get in this idea of like, okay, where's this, is what I did 13 years ago. Like, where's my competitive advantage as a 20 year old who lives with his parents? Like, you know, I didn't have much, but I had some and you weigh in, you lean into them and you build up and you kind of get momentum. So do you, I guess like people coming in like younger younger people coming out of college like are you finding there's like a uh, again a generational stigma do you think that i i find that younger kids are just not patient enough that mm-hmm. like you just i'm like it takes time to build something really meaningful and good and you're 22 years old with almost zero experience like this is what you got to expect and like right. don't expect the person that's 38 years old has been doing this for you know 18 years to have this like you should be at that level that's a lot. I mean, do you, do you find that Oh, it's that hard. Oh, it's so hard. And then what happens is these kids come out of school, you know, with a crap ton of student debt as well. Yeah. Like, well, I need this salary to pay off my student my student debt. And I'm like, well, do you really need that Mustang that's out in the yeah. parking lot that you drove yeah. to this interview in? your expenses, yeah. Right? Um, so it's, but it's it's almost, and I hate, I don't like saying it because, you know, I don't want to group ever, paint everyone with one brush. Um because I'm a millennial, but I don't really think I'm a millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's entitlement. It's entitlement. And then, yeah, this quietly quitting is really only millennial and then um, the generation below us, right? Um, that, you know, it's three o'clock, it's the end of my shift, and I'm going to leave. Um, but they still expect to be paid the same amount as someone who's going to stay until four o'clock and, and get the work done. So it's a lot of entitlement. Um, of what they think that they deserve. And I think a lot of that is the fact that 
student loan or student debt is so high, mm-hmm. right? They have to economy prices for everything has just gone up exponentially. And, you know, we're as com- we as companies are expected to make up that difference to help them pay that off. But we can't, first off, we can't find people <laughs> to, to fill these jobs, which means we can't make the product to then make us the money to pay somebody to make that. Yeah. It's just, yep. it's this vicious cycle um, but yes, I do. I do think that that's generational. Um, and then I think that anybody who is willing to do it um, and to start off down below, I don't care if they got a D in one of their engineering classes or they didn't ta- graduate top of their class because that person is willing to work. And if they're willing to start out in the weeds, then I like their work ethic. I always mm-hmm. say that I can train a, um, a skill. I can't train a work ethic. Yeah. 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 Um, and so those people are the ones that I really like to, to see. And I know that I don't know who said it, but the saying that the doctor who graduated last of his class is still a doctor. Mm-hmm. So it's engineers the same way. What um, When did you have your first job? So like legal job? I mean, I babysat since I was like 10, um, but I couldn't work in this country until I got my Greek card. Did you so. work in Canada at all? Um, like summer jobs that were like under the table. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying you like worked and had responsibility. Oh, for sure. I, I ask a lot of like, I've asked, um, young people and I've, we've had interns before and I've, I, I typically ask them, when did you get your first job? Cause you see a lot of kids are like, ah, when I was like 18. And then I always love kind of like your answer, like first working paper job or first like <laughs> job, like under maybe like getting paid by a family member kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, like I, I go back to probably like eight, nine, ten mowing lawns. Yeah. But then my first Rapping. job was like fourteen. I got working papers, started working soon after, and was like haven't stopped working for twenty something years. Like, but you look at like I've just always worked, worked because I've always like if I want something I work to get it, or I make yeah. money, or if I save money for something, or you know, and I I find that that's it's very telling for some people because you learn the work ethic. Like, well, I went to college and had these two jobs and I was coaching and I was doing this. I'm like, and I had to take more classes. I'm like, oh, okay. So you're probably fine. Like you're doing. You'll be, you'll be great. Yeah. I had two jobs in college. I played or I did track and field. I was a double major. And I would say sports is a full-time job in college. It is. Yeah. It was a lot. Um, But yeah, I think even, I think my very, so other than babysitting, though in this country, like you guys are strange with your babysitting. First off, in Canada, you have to be, you have to have like a babysitting certification. But I remember being in grade four and taking that class, like how to change a baby's diaper and how to check, you know, for warm, well, warm milk, right? You can't do it with your finger. You have to put it onto your wrist. And I remember being in grade four and, and doing this course and I was a nanny ish. Like it was after school every single day for four hours after school. Sorry, not every single day. I think it was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I had to do it. And I was in grade eight at that time, taking care of a two-year-old. Um, <laughs> and then I I think even before that, it was my first refing job. Um, and yeah, I had to go to school and I was a soccer player. So I got to ref soccer for kids that were younger than me. 
by like a few years they were yeah, like yeah. by a lot and i remember parents yelling at me i can't and i love sports and i love kids that play sports yeah. and i've coached kids and obviously refed kids and i will tell you i have zero patience or time for an adult that yells at any i was gonna child. say you don't love parents of, of children that play sports not when they're yelling or when they yell at when people yell at refs it really takes and don't get me wrong i've seen my fair share of games where a ref makes a bad call and if i'm at home watching on the television like all the bad calls for the leafs against the florida panthers recently i was screaming at the television but i would never do it to the actual ref because i was there and these kids were like six years old and it's one of my favorite refing stories because of how awful it was this dad freaked out on me again i think these kids were u7 so they they were six and seven and they threw the ball in and their foot came up and um so i blew the whistle and i let him do it again i'm like okay honey you got to keep your feet on the ground and throw the ball yep. in. So I've did I've done my teaching. It's my job as a ref for that age. So I'd let them do it again. And poor little girl lifted her foot again and threw the ball in. And the kids were all swarming after it as kids do. And I'm like, okay, we'll just let it play. It doesn't really, they're six. It doesn't really matter. Nobody cares. And this dad flipped out, like screaming at me. He's like, hey, she lifted her foot. Uh, that needs to be blown down. That's our son's ball, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Honey, they're six. They're six. They're yeah. six. And then it gets made because my parents, I love them, are really nerdy and they love us. And so they would actually come watch us ref. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're kind of nerdy like that. And so my dad lost it on this man. He's like, she's 10. You're really going to yell at her because a kid lifted his foot yeah. or her foot? It was just, so yeah, no, parents who yell at refs and kids at that age. I'm like, I have no time There should time be a special place not near the field for those parents. <laughs> I but, agree. Um, so, Yes. Um, last thing I want to ask you about, mm. cause you put it here and I, 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 read it and I thought it was good. Talk about your life altering moment. My life altering moment. Okay. This was, remember what I told you at the beginning of this, when I wrote this down and I said, my girlfriend and I talked about this and we not decided to talk about this? not to talk, but I will. Cause, cause I think we did talk about it afterwards. Um, I mean, I can ask why your dog's name is Mr. Darcy. <laughs> you also wrote that. I love that. But, um, do, do the, do the life altering, do the life altering. So in February, I had a new client meeting up in Toronto. Um, which I can't disclose their name because of an NDA. Um, But I was waiting for my train and on this wall, and it was a beautiful wall, and it said, um, one thing I would like to do before I died is, and then there were, I mean, it's Toronto, so it's a huge city. So there are hundreds of answers all over these bricks on this wall of things these people would like to do. And I'm reading them and it was such a life-altering moment because I feel like I've just been like we talked about earlier just going just mm-hmm. going non-stop this whole you know stillness is what is it stillness is the key mm-hmm. um I haven't been able to get that so it was actually really upsetting for me because I don't know what that is like if I was told I have cancer tomorrow mm-hmm. and that I have two weeks to live <laughs> knock on wood that that doesn't actually happen to me um yeah, it really upset me that I don't know what I want to do with my life, um, what a passion or what my purpose is on on this planet. And I see all these other people, like my sister, she and her fiance are like avid outdoors people. They rock climb, they surf, uh, they backcountry ski. They're always going. It's an exhausting life. And I like doing all of those things, but not as often as they do. Um, and, you know, all these other people that just, yeah, have have dreams and passions and purposes and I think it was life-altering because I realized that 
I've spent so long trying to just like make a name for myself and be successful that I don't even know what success looks like to me at this point in my life. And I get I'm 32 years old, that maybe I'm not supposed to know what that is. But I also don't really have any, any passions. Um, So yeah, it was upsetting. And I think it just made me kind of sit back and hopefully slow down. I haven't got to the slow down phase yet, but I think it's something that I kind of want to work on for myself is to understand that, yeah, I want to make a success for myself, but what does success look like for me? Is my passion, you know, building this non nonprofit program for refugees? Is that, you know, a passion and a purpose, right? Like why did God put me on this earth? Was it so that way I could help out these other people? Like I said before, I'm a huge people pleaser. So um, that would be really fulfilling for me. Um, yeah, it's also the fact that, you know, I'm 32 and I don't know if I do want to have children, mm-hmm. right? There's just a lot of questions. And then that wall, um, while I was waiting for a train, kind of just brought them all to the surface for me. Um, so the one thing you'd like to do, did you have an answer? Or is that, you don't have to share it if you don't want, but I'm saying I, like, is that... I, I don't, I think it was just, you know, when my girlfriend Alex and I were talking about it, um, it was, you know, trying to figure out she explained to me what the difference was between a passion and a purpose. And do I want to find a passion in my life? Cause I don't know anything I'm really passionate about mm-hmm. other than work at this point. Cause that's just been my life. Um, or do I want to find a purpose in my life? Um, so I think it's, yeah, trying to, trying to figure that out. Um, and I think ever since I've thought, and truthfully when you and I talked or when you had sent me this stuff to kind of figure that out, I was thinking about it. And yeah, I think it really is, you know, making this this program to to help out other people just with my study. Because it's one of those things, you know, how so many people go off to school and they study one thing and do something completely opposite. Um, at least this way, if I could achieve that, it would still kind of bring in everything that I learned, you know, that I went to school for, spent all the money on my master's program for that I'm not actually using um, and bring that to my, to my life. Um, do you journal? I used to. It's always like, I'm really pathetic for my New Year's resolutions. That's always my New Year's resolution. You're going to write down something every single day, even if it's two sentences. And I'm good until like March. And then it just stops. And then it's like, oh, I missed today. I'll do it tomorrow. Then I do it tomorrow and then I miss three days. And then I kind of just lose it from there. Um, when you were filling this out, did this, did you, when you were filling this out, did you like filling this out? I did. It feels like a journal entry. Just, you know, I'm looking at it and I can see all the red. I'm like, I wrote that much? I don't remember writing that I, much. It's great. And actually, I, I'm not going to read what you wrote, but how you wrote it and phrased it, I think is great. But I also feel like this might have been like a, almost like a journaling activity where you kind of were able to get thoughts on paper, which yeah. is very important. Um, I, I, I've tried, I've been in and out of journaling. I've done it very consistent. I've fallen out of journaling. I feel I'm best when I have a lot on my mind and I think the best thing for me to figure out like a problem or a thought is just to sit down and write and like, and write could just be like scribbling out just fast, quick ideas. It could be like long form for me. It's more of like sentences. It's not like a full paragraph Mm -hmm. of stuff. It's more of like idea one, idea two, a lot of numbers, a lot of like increase this, decrease that. Like, but I try to think through problems by just writing stuff down or I start writing down, I did one the other day, of like questions I wanted to ask, like questions I want to answer. 
and there's stuff that then could be like a one-off question or there could be stuff that just you go over time and i'm i'm not smart enough to think of these so these are things either books i've read or stories i've come across and i'm like i i like that question or maybe the author's like these are questions that i ask myself when i'm in a rut or something and and but they're thought-provoking questions and they kind of get your mind expanding a little bit and i think you know a lot of it is kind of and i'm i feel like i'm similar in a boat i don't think i had a life-altering moment but i do feel like i'm in a stage where thing priorities are shifting in my life of like okay i'm experiencing new things what do i want to do with my like what do i want my life to look like because i'm a very big like i want to accomplish stuff but then i'm like if i keep going like maybe in this direction that's really not going to fulfill me even if i get to that level so it's like how can i do something that I find enjoyment out of, I find happiness out of, I find like limited stress, you know, high, like, so a lot of the notes and, and thoughts, I'm like, you know, I don't want this, I want this, like, I, you know, and I, I try to put it all down, but I think I'm the same way, like, I don't know if I have, like, people are like, oh, passion or purpose or whatever, of like, what do you like doing? And I'm like, okay, well, I could figure out a handful of things I like doing yeah. and then a matter of like, okay, can you monetize that? Because, you know, a lot of stuff, if you could say, like one of the, I, one of the things I came across, if you had $10 million, infinite, let's say an infinite amount of money and you could do whatever you want, what do you want to do? Because then it would get away from the stressor of like having to do certain things in your business Absolutely. where it's like, I don't want to be on the beach and answering phone calls, which I'm the same way. Like I've never been able to shut off my, my life on a vacation I think I've done it one time and it was because out of the country with no service mm. and it was great. Mm. And I, you know how quickly it took me to not want to pick up the phone or being comfortable, not picking up the phone an hour. Like I'm not a big phone guy. Like if I didn't have my phone for work, I don't know if I'd even like really carry one day today. Um, but it's like figuring out stuff that I want from like a, a, a living um, quality of life perspective and then also finding like you said kind of a purpose perspective of like what would I get really a lot of joy or enjoyment out of uh, whether that's helping refugees like you said or it could be just something simple but it brings me a ton of happiness right. like look at these people that like what do you do all day I'm like I work with wood and I build stuff and I just am in a shop listening to music by myself I build them I sell them off to people I get up every day have a cup of coffee and this is what I do I'm like I just feel like that would be like if you really like that, that just seems like a very stress free environment where I find like my life coupled with anything when you're dealing with the public or in the service industry, as you are, too. It's like you're unfortunately on call. Like one of the things I wrote in my thing was I don't want to be on call. I don't want people to expect to have to hear from me. Like these are things that I will respond. I will do stuff, but I don't want it to be like I, I text you or called you. Therefore, pick up the phone and talk to me. I'm like. I, I literally wrote, I'm not on call. Like that's, but that's something I want to work towards. Like, how do I get to the point where I do all my work, but I don't have those distractions or interruptions. And so I feel like we're about the same age. I feel like I'm in the same boat. Um, it wasn't, as like I said, a much of like, what do I want to do before I die? But it's more of like, I really want to maximize my life. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, do I really, I, like, I like doing what I'm doing. Is it the thing that I love doing the most probably out of anything I could do? No, I'm not. Like, I would never lie and be like, this is the greatest thing ever. I like it. I'm good at it. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like, like I've gotten better at it. But it's still one where I'm like, I feel like there's something better that I could do. I could be James Bond. I could no. be James Bond. <laughs> I could, If not, like, I, I could be, like, I, 
an actor in the next James Bond movie. I just kidding. I don't want to act. Like that's not on my list. No, I want to actually be James Bond. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm actually like I want. Yeah, I want an MI or I want a double O something. Yeah. What would be your double O number? What? Because they're my all two favorite numbers taken. Are, right, but my two favorite numbers are ten and eleven. Um, so I don't think you can do a double O ten. So I'd just be. Would just be O ten. O ten. Yeah. G- Gina's favorite's eleven too. Is it? She would be O eleven. You know why? You know why? Because her favorite number was one, and when you couldn't get one on a sports team. She got two ones. So it wasn't eleven; it was two ones. <laughs> when I lived in Canada, I was ten. When I li- moved to the states, ten was taken, so I was eleven. And then when I played at Plattsburgh State, were you eleven? No, ten and eleven were taken, so I added them. And I'm like, I'll be twenty-one. <laughs> I like it. That's my, my my favorite number was twenty-four. I was it was the number I was born on, so I was like, that's just always been my number. But, um, well, Holly. We're going to wrap it up there. Perfect. This was a lot. I was so nervous. This was a lot easier. You, you did I really thought. well. I, I wish I could have gotten more hockey talk in, but that's that's no. that's okay. My it, team's out. There's really not maybe, much maybe to talk at, about. You actually wrote how much the Maple Leafs, my team sucks. So, we suck. Um, it, are the Maple Leafs your favorite pro sports team? Yes. Okay. Are, are you a Raptors fan or a Blue Jays fan? Um, I cheer for them just because they're the only Canadian teams left in those. Yeah. Um, leagues um but now i'm a big i'm a big leafs fan okay. hockey's my favorite sport i played soccer did you play hockey um we would have a ice rink in our backyard so i grew up skating and <laughs> playing hockey but never in the league or anything my favorite all-time sports team of all time to this day is montreal expos they haven't been around since 04 they but. haven't been around for a while it was they left before i even moved here so i never got to watch them play yeah but. yeah that's still a sore subject for me but no, hey you know right. that's when i was like like a kid but maybe one day they'll come back and if they do i'll be going to two games um all right holly if people want to find you how can they find you for any of your uh how, how can they find you <laughs> i was gonna say for any of the companies but really i'm all over um but linkedin mm-hmm. um i have my webpage hurdlegroupinc.com uh, which then has links to all of my other companies as well um, I am not a big social media person. I actually got yelled at by my aunt the other day that I don't post anything on Instagram anymore, and I haven't in years. <laughs> so I'm not really big on social doing? media, um, other than LinkedIn. Um, but uh, my per- professional profiles on LinkedIn. All of my companies are on LinkedIn, and then yeah, my website. Cool. And I'm always around town, as you said. We always see each other at events. Yes, you're very active, and like I said, I don't think I open up LinkedIn without seeing something from you. Or mm-hmm. there's a couple people that are you and Gary Douglas. I feel like I get more more stuff from <laughs> most of my stuff. I think is just liking everything that Gary, Gary Douglas does. <laughs> Gary pushes out an article. I'm like I like it. So, I do too. Um, Be on the good side of Gary Douglas. That's he. He is the he's the godfather of Plattsburgh economics. So, um, all right, well, we're gonna end there. Episode two, three, four of the Galen Trombley Show. We're out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.